Greetings and salutations. You've successfully arrived at the bloody, disgusting network. The passage of time will now bring you to something strange, unique, and idiosyncratic. Have a good time. Surprise! Did you miss me, Andy? I sure missed you. I told you. We were gonna be friends to the end. And now... It's time to play. I got a new game, sport. It's called Hide the Soul. And guess what? You're it. From the Playland Fire in Sweet Home Chicago to a coming of rage in Hackenslash, New Jersey, we are Halloweenies. Greetings and welcome yet again to Halloweenies, a horror franchise podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Justin Lee Ray Gerber, and uh, do I hear wedding bells? Well, that can only mean one thing. Our not-so-good good guy doll has knelt down on one blood-soaked jeaned leg and proposed to a not-so-good good gal doll, as God intended. Uh, it's time to discuss Ronnie Yu's 1998 Ride of Chucky, but... Before we do that, let's go around this reception table we're all sitting at and discuss the first time we remember seeing Bride of Chucky, as well as any specific favorite wedding moments from ceremonies that we've attended over the years. Uh, Let's start off with somebody who is uh, calling in from the Far East. I'm not talking about Hong Kong, which we'll be discussing later on, but the Far East, United States of America. And who is that? This is Living Dead Dan Caffrey. Oh, that's a great one. The first time... It's funny because when this came out, I, I know this sounds like an idiotic thing to say. I think the movie was too smart for me, and I didn't quite get what it was doing because I feel like when it came out, I saw the weird Scream ripoff poster, and I just was looking at it purely as, oh, this plot is so dumb. Oh, they're going so over the top of the series, et cetera, et cetera. And then I rewatched it many times later on as an adult, and it gets better and better because you start to realize everything the movie is playing with, both aesthetically with the universal horror movies, which I know we'll get to. Mm. Honestly, with with the uh, LGBTQ characters, which at the time I think was looked at as little more than a lark. And as the series has progressed, I think, I think that Mancini was actually doing something very smart and really leaning into it, starting with this movie, more explicitly at least than what we talked about on Child's Play 3. So anyway, I did see this when it first came out. I, th- I want to say like on sci-fi or something. I don't think I saw it in theaters and didn't love it. And just as I've binged the Chucky series over the years, I- I've just really come to enjoy it. This past October, I watched it as part of the uh, 31 Days of Halloween Hell on the Losers Club. And I think that really cemented it for me as a bit of a classic. I'll go ahead and say it. So yeah, I'm excited to talk about it today. It's funny, I'm imagining you having problems wrapping your head around this at 14 and, and thinking about Mike's parents taking him to go see, like, the Grifters at five years old or something like that. And <laughs> it's like, yeah, I got this. But uh, I, I think it was, I mean, it's so dumb because I, I actually hate it when people have these criticisms about horror movies now of just sort of 
honestly not meeting the genre on its own terms, right? Just being like, oh, yes. that's dumb. Oh, Chucky is a bride now. That's stupid. That's not scary. And I feel like that's how I looked at it. Like I wanted it to be like a serious horror movie at, at 13 and or 14, whenever it came out. And you asked about wedding memories, right? Yeah, please. A lot, it may have been a lot of weddings. Had a lot of, a lot of great ones. I don't know. Do I choose one for my own wedding? Do I? Uh, no, well, you know, no, bra- I know. Bra- I know. Brag I much? Uh, <laughs> I know. I know what I'll talk about. All right. This is. I feel like if Susan's listening, she would want me to say something more sentimental. But it's actually hard to remember a lot from your own wedding. But something I remember from my wedding is that I w- we didn't have a live band. We uh, at least for the dancing, um, and we didn't have a DJ. So I was curating all the music, and I I didn't do a shuffle playlist. I just I really made sure it had peaks and valleys, like you should do with any good playlist. And I kept it all bangers. I took off some indie rock stuff at the end that I knew most people wouldn't know. I really wanted to keep it. No, I want this to appeal to everyone and just get people excited. Except the Yellow River Boys, which is Tim Heidecker's side project band that recorded an entire classic rock album about drinking piss (laughs) called Urinal Street Station. And what's great about this album is if you don't listen to the lyrics, you would seriously think it was a Bob Seger record. Like it, It sounds just like that. You would have no idea that it was a song, a whole record about drinking pee and one song about eating poop. And oh. <laughs> the, the single God. from that is called Hot Piss. It's the opening track. And I said, I'm going to put this on and just to see if I can sneak it in there because it sounds like an old classic rock song you might hear at a wedding. And, you know, the real ones will know and they'll get out there and dance. And so I put it on and I think I'd even emailed all of you who, who were fans of Tim Heidecker beforehand to let you know it was going to get played. And so I remember like a bunch of like, bro friends essentially including you guys rushing to the dance floor when that started and dancing and there were some older people out there like my aunts and uncles and stuff and people were going along to it but then people did start listening to the lyrics and you saw like older people just slowly trickle out trickle out trickle no out wow of the yeah. dance floor and i remember being like this worked exactly like i wanted it to uh my wedding was wonderful. There are many more sentimental memories, um, but I hey, look, we're we're getting gross today, so why not share that one? That's my memory. That is a great memory, and I'm ha- I was happy to partake in that. Uh, that was a lot of fun, obviously. Uh, okay, well, let's move on to our next guest. This guest is calling in uh, not from the state of Illinois, which really narrows it down to these last two people. And I think that they know who I'm talking to. Who is this person? Hey, this is Rachel. Hello, Dolly Reeves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and kind of Chucky, man. I saw this not in the theater. I was a little bit too young. My parents, there's no way they would have been letting me go see Bride of Chucky in the theater. So didn't catch this one till my uh, my high school years when I was really digging into a lot of these more major horror franchises. And I th- I remember thinking it was really fun, but the thing is, like. I've only grown to love this film more over time. I feel like I feel like by that point, maybe I thought it was like a little cheesy, like Dan was saying a little bit like, okay, and like some of the music, but I was like, yeah, all right. But every time I've watched, it's just like, man, this actually is super fun and has only like its place in my heart has only like gotten bigger and I'm so excited to talk about. <laughs> yeah, there's there's definitely a lot to talk about. I mean, it being I think 89 minutes and that's including credits also helps its re rewatchability for sure. Okay, so like wedding memories. So, I'm not a huge like wedding person like for my wedding. <laughs> no, you know. <laughs> not again, not to brag. Not to brag, <laughs> but when I got married in January of 2020, which was great, 
Um, we just went to, did a whole, just the courthouse thing, you know, the traditional courthouse thing. Cause it was like, man, I don't know. This seems like a lot of work to have like a crazy fancy wedding. And there was something like actually that I just loved about that idea of just like, all right, grabbing a few friends and family. Oh, can you make it? Nope. Not a big deal. No biggie. And just like going to the courthouse and doing it that way. But then on the flip side, like my sister had a really lovely wedding at like my parents' house, very traditional and in their backyard. And it was Mm. super fun to like see it from that perspective and have, you know, just like the dogs all over the place. And my parents live out in the country a little bit. So as she's getting married, there was like, roosters my parents roosters that like wouldn't shut up in the background and which just made me laugh like and there's nothing greater than being in like a moment that's like really serious obviously and it's like their moment and I just can't stop laughing at this stupid rooster that's just like you know going off not even like a hundred yards from us and so that was great just getting those looks from my mom the more and more you try to stifle it the worse it gets to it's, it's no, exactly it's and like, like getting these the like glares from like my mom because she's like this is your sister's wedding and it's just yeah so that, just, that that was fun with all the dogs and chickens you had hot piss at your wedding as well in <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah i'm seeing i'm seeing a, a through line here interesting oh, <laughs> what is it about weddings <laughs> it all comes down to that hot hot piss uh, yeah. if this is your first time listening to halloweenies uh, welcome we're so, we're so happy that you're here okay let's go to our uh, final coast for this episode narrowed it down so i think he knows uh who who, who, who to whom i'm speaking uh, to use that phrase correctly, and my any any favorite weddings you've been to over the years as well uh, as your first experience seeing Brad Chucky. Go ahead, please. Hey, this is Michael Mancini Rothman, uh, and look, this is one of my most memorable horror experiences because I recall. I mean, nineteen ninety eight. When you go back, that was probably the biggest year for horror for me growing up because mm-hmm. at that point. I considered myself a quote unquote scholar, God, just an eye rolling term for that. But I really did just because I had at that point devoured everything in the horror section at Blockbuster because I was around three years in to loving the Halloween franchise, three or four years into loving the Halloween franchise. This is the year of H2O. And that summer, you know, just, just eating up everything in its wake. And so I recall uh, for some reason, even though I was doing a newsletter, at the time and running a Halloween website, I guess I was just so obsessed with Myers that I didn't realize that, yeah, Universal's also dusting off the, fr- the, the Chucky franchise because it wasn't until I saw H2O that I saw the trailer for Bride of Chucky. And I just remember going like, oh my God, he's back too. And you just kind of had this feeling of, I'm getting what everyone else got in the 80s. And it was that, it was really a fun moment in late 98 when that was all coming together and and coalescing. And so I was really excited for this movie. I was really, really excited. And I just, you know, that October, I saw it with a fellow guest in the pod, Kat Kat Bockard, and we saw it together. And I just remember just gleefully smiling the entire time, just being like, this is such a blast. This is, this is so funny. And I did, I, I think I was really kind of blown away by how funny it was because I, you have to recall, like, I mean, nowadays we know that Chucky's funny, right? But back then he had like one-liners that are clearly funny from Child's Play 2 and Child's Play 3. But especially as a kid, he's still scary. 
like that first child's play is scary. Like I, I, you know, my brother who watched Texas Chainsaw Massacre with me at young age didn't have a problem with that, but then had a huge problem with child's play. And so this movie that there was a stigma associated with Chucky. So when it first came out to see it be such a genuine comedy, that was really like this sort of silver lining experience was just knowing like, Oh my God, like I did not expect this. And this is really, really fun. And it made it that it made it that ultimately that much more rewatchable. Now I didn't see it in theaters again because again, being 98, I'm only 14 and you really had to sneak into these movies and it was really hard to sneak in. Like you had to like really, you know, finagle your way into getting these, uh, into these screenings. And a lot of it involved buying a ticket for something else and then jumping in. And so I remember feeling fortunate that I was able to get into it. And so I, I just had wait, I waited so patiently to, for it to like, at least be on cable so I could take, uh, I, you know, like the black box, so I could like um, record it. But uh, yeah, love this movie. Excited to talk about it. And my, honestly, when it comes to weddings, uh, an anecdote, we'll keep it with Caffrey's wedding. Um, the, I remember we had, God, there's, it was a long day. And I hadn't eaten and I was in a long line and this was like a Kirby enthusiasm episode. There was, we were on the way to the, they had barbecue from wishbone. And I remember seeing the meat and I love, I love brisket. And I was so excited. Mm. They're cutting the meat, they're cutting the meat, they're cutting the meat. And I hadn't eaten all day. And you know, you're in this hot, hot day and they finally get to me and it's just, and I was like, Oh, we're going to get the new brisket. And they're like, no, 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 here you go. And it was just all fat. (laughs) <laughs> and I was so angry. I was just like, and I was like, should I wait? Like, I was like, um, and so I, I, I actually like could not get over it the whole night. I was just thinking like, everyone had great meat and stuff, but I, you know, should I go back in line? Should I get another brisket? So I, ultimately I didn't, I just, you know, stomached it all. And then, um, you know, eventually, uh, dance like the piss pig freaks we were, uh, you know, early on. Piss so. pig freak <laughs> to hot piss. I mean, well, the soundtrack is bountiful. What can I yeah. say? It was, a, it was yeah. a great time. Yeah. For me, uh, I saw. I did see Brad Chucky in theaters. Actually, I, I believe this came out on my 18th birthday, so I was finally able to really just smoke a whole pack of cigarettes before nice. walking into Brad Chucky. <laughs> I'm here to see Brad Chucky. Hello, I'm an experienced smoker. I'd like, <laughs> like to see Brad Chucky. Yeah, like, <laughs> just, <laughs> counselor, counselor. Not that they do. So yeah, so I had a whole pack of cigarettes, and then I went to go. <laughs> I remember it was a matinee at AMC Pleasure Island 24, and that theater had only been open for a couple years. It was one of the first big multiplexes near Disney. And matinee showing, and I, I loved it right away, though. And, and I'd still, you know, I was familiar with the first three movies specifically. But I remember that third one left a, like a bad taste in my mouth, which I think it did for a lot of people. And just immediately, it was just so refreshing, the way it looked and the way it sounded and the performances it just stood out as a, as a really great example of what you can do with a reboot. And I'll, I'll ask this question off the top of my head, because I remember, yeah, you said Halloween H2O came out the same year. And for years, I always felt that Halloween H2O was better. But yep. I, I think Brad Chucky is actually better than yeah. H2O now. I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm not, Dan, I'm not sure about you, but <laughs> everybody else is kind of that. nodding yeah. here. Not gonna Dan, that, you're still in H2O. Good. Look, I still like H2O, but I think, uh, I think Bride's supplanted. I think there's been a divorce, and I think I've got a new bride. Is what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, favorite wedding memories. We might as well keep making this about Dan Caffrey because I remember Dan. Dan, your wedding was in June, right? Of twenty. It was yeah. What yeah, year was it again? It was June in twenty fourteen. Okay, twenty fourteen. I think it was the hottest day on record. Oh yeah. Oh, well. it was awful. Yeah, the, the I weather think it was, was like ninety eight degrees, and we're all wearing like these. You know, we didn't have to wear. Suit jackets, which was nice. We just had to wear ties and and a, and a dress pants. Shirt. Yeah, yeah, dress pants. 
But we, so we had a limo take us out there. Dan, were you, you weren't in the limo though, were you? No, I was in it. Yeah, I was you in it. We with, 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 with you guys and Mac. And yeah, so yeah. we were in this limo. We were heading down. Was it out west? I think it was. Yeah, we and were in near Garfield Park. So it was pretty far. It was not close to where any of us lived. Yeah, it was a bit of a trek. So this limo kept stalling out, and then finally, it just plain stopped, and we had to walk. <laughs> <laughs> Garland Park in the sweltering heat. Like a good I'll never mile. Forget how hot. It was a good more. mile. It was a yeah. mile, and I just remember it felt like that scene in Labyrinth when she's running down the like the hall, and it just keeps expanding. It just felt like we were never going to hit this venue. It just kept going. Well, on do you remember and on. too? The, the limo so driver hot. was like he felt really bad about it, and he kept trying to get us to stay, and he was like pouring water in the engine oh to cool God. it down. And, and that's when I think like, we I'm all sorry. went. You know what? We're, we're going. Like, uh, <laughs> And we were demanding, like, you make sure you don't get charged for this. And uh, I'm not sure if you actually did, but... Uh, Susan, was, Susan did. She, like... I remember her kind of tearing good, out the, good, the people good. on the phone. I'm not good at that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, not good, I'm not good at standing up for myself. So. Uh, for me, what was funny is that... So, Paul, I think, arranged it so that we all got uh, the same style of, you know, clothing for the, you know, the outfits oh, yeah, and yeah, yeah. that we had to wear for all the groomsmen. And I, you know, everyone has different sizes, for uh their different you know different outfits or, or whatever clothing labels have all their different sizes and stuff so i usually i went with what i usually get except that i guess it was really cut smaller so my pants were so fucking tight so it was just so uncomfortable like i was just sitting there it's just like really it felt like i had skinny jeans but there were slacks and so i'm like in the in the sweltering heat with like pants that i'm like probably chafing like crazy like i'm just like walking yeah, just being like yeah. oh god damn it get me to the fucking menu and i, I just remember <laughs> being like just like looking so disgusting when i when i finally arrived because it just was like and, and i you know fortunately we all dried <laughs> off but i'll just never be i'll never forget just the, how tight the pants were I, it, it was just like god i really i really didn't do enough research on this um but well i yeah. think we stole that bottle of water that the guy was dumping into the engine to cool it off <laughs> doused ourselves with yeah. when yeah. we got to the venue yeah uh, let's see i oh, know we're columbus park but Garfield Park's the name. I think we the venue is in Columbus Park, but I think we broke down in Garfield Park, which is like a whole other neighborhood over. So that's why the oh god. Yeah, well, time. Rachel, don't you feel bad that none of your wedding memories included Dan? Yeah, I <laughs> really, uh, really missed out. It's, it's, it's been a long, uncomfortable episode. Dan is fuming clearly. <laughs> Absolutely worthless. Okay, well, listen, it is time to move on, and you know, what better place to get our information than a special uh, tech uh, chart? thing that i've got in a, in a in a cabin nearby and i've got the keys from this guy he looks like he's 45 but he's i think he's like 28 years old glasses curly hair bandana around the neck short shorts uh i'm not talking about insert your joke here i'm talking about steve christie and we're gonna head over to steve christie's bulletin board hello who's that Hi. What are you doing out in this mess? All right, not a whole lot of news right now, except we can get into the real sad logistics of the current WGA strike and, and whatnot. But look, I'm not, I'm not in the Writers Guild, and I don't have all the information present. But long story short, not a lot of news going out out there in Hollywood in relation to any franchises that we've been covering. Although, a very special documentary on a very special actor whose career we've absolutely covered on this podcast namely season two of Halloweenies, Robert Englund. Mike Rothman, you want to talk about that documentary that just dropped? I think it's on Screenbox right now, actually. 
Yes, and uh, I should mention right at the top that I am the director of sales at Buddy Disgusting. So uh, if I'm sitting here talking about Screenbox, you know, I get it. It probably looks like I'm shilling for the thing, but hey, maybe I am. But I, all I got to say is uh, it is on Screenbox and I do work for Screenbox. So I apologize if this does come off as like a sponsored plug or whatever, but I'm speaking from the heart. I, de- I generally do generally do mean that uh, because I love long form documentaries and they got a good one. It's called Hollywood dreams and nightmares. The Robert England story. God, I, I sound like such a shill saying this, but anyway, it's, it's really good. It's like two and a half hours. It's, I think it's a little over two hours. It goes really deep into England's career. It's directed by the same filmmakers who did stuff like you're so cool. Brewster, that fright night doc, great the story. Like last year's the story of it, which is fucking great. Uh, they did the robo doc, the creation of, of RoboCop. And they also did um, the Leviathan, the, the Hellraiser one, which I haven't watched yet, but they clearly know what they're doing. And it shows when you watch the documentary because it's just, it's pretty Im- it's impressive of just, just how exhaustive it is. It really goes into just every corner of his career. Like I had no clue that England had ties to Star Wars and I guess he was pals with Mark Hamill at the time. And he, he, he directed the-, the first Star Wars. Oh, he did. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. So like when Lucas was losing his mind in Tunisia, he was just like, uh, well, let me, George, let me get this for you. I got this. I got, you know, I, I know the shots. Yeah. If um, you watch the credits, right when it, you know, you see everybody at the ceremony Yeah, and it cuts to the blue credits, it says yeah. directed by Robert England there. Holy like, shit. That's wild. Yeah, I always thought it said directed by George Lucas, but no, uh, no, 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 no. interesting. But yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a, it's a really impressive doc and he, it's filled with personality, you know? And I think that's one of the things I love about these documentaries. It's not so much just the like the Rick Dalton of it all, where you're like pointing at the screen and being like, I remember that scene, uh, which so many of these documentaries become, but it really gets into the personality of the subject at hand. And also the the people talking about him. I mean, there's a lot of talking heads here. Like Lynn Shea really goes to bat for him. Heather Langenkamp has some great moments there, but his wife, I believe Nancy England, I think is her name. She's, she's hilarious Weird. in this. Nancy's yeah, her name? Like- like, let me, <laughs> let me get this first real, real quick because I, I don't want to fuck that up. His wife is, is just hilarious in it and um, has a lot of really awesome anecdotes and just things about where, you know, things that we always knew about uh, about Robert England and just how like, you know, how verbose he is and just, yeah, it is Nancy. It's, it's, it's Nancy, Nancy England. I was right. How about mm. that? That is interesting though. I wonder if like, that's like a joke that gets so tired with her. It's just like, oh God, all right. Yep. We get it. I guess you got you, Nancy. It's like, yeah, I guess you have me. How about that? (laughs) But like, there's just some moments where like, especially when he's talking about like Stranger Things and he's like, oh, I didn't get the role. And it's just like, it's not that he didn't get the role. It's the role went to someone else. And it's just like funny little back and forth there, but it's worth a watch. I, as you know, as I've tweeted multiple times, I've watched the the William Freakin doc on Shudder well over 500 times. So I'm, you know, I'm something of a, of again, a scholar when it comes to these. So it is Nancy, Nancy Booth, his wife. Yeah. So I, you know, check it out. It's fun. And I will say, and this is going to be more of a shameless plug is that Screenbox does have like all the documentaries I just mentioned and more like they've, you know, our buddy over at the losers club, John Campiano, he did uh, Unearth and untold. That's the pet cemetery one that's on there. Um, there's also a creep show doc called, uh, just desserts. That's been fun. I've been re- rewatching that again. I just, I love these docs because they are really good. If you work at home, they're really good to just have in the background and you do retain a lot of the stuff that's, that's in there. Like I can't tell you like how many times I'll just be writing or doing some scripts for these episodes. And I'll just think of something that I remembered from the doc I've seen probably like 300 times or whatever, but like Robert uh, saying something like, um, when I was visiting Tuscany, I was on the balcony with Argento, and yeah. we were talking about what we wanted to do 
what he was going to do with his Phantom of the Opera and what I was going to do with my Phantom of the Opera. Well, they go into that fan. <laughs> the, the Phantom one is a really interesting part of it because they talk about why it didn't work marketing wise in that doc. Because they and, market it like a Nightmare on Elm Street movie. Yeah. I remember it, when I was a kid, I saw, like, I thought it was a new Freddy movie because they just showed the top of his eyes and it really made it look like a nightmare sequel. I've never seen it, so I don't know if. Uh, well, you could, it's you could tell well, I got I got off fun, so much. Maybe this, I'm, yeah, not, I'm not sure if they mentioned this in the documentary, but fun fact is that that movie was directed by Dwight H. Little, who directed Halloween 4. And who ended up engaged to the lead of Family Opera? It's uh, Jill. I can't pronounce her last name. Sherlin. Sherlin. She was in The Stepfather. She was in Cutting Class. She was in Popcorn. And she left her then boyfriend for the director. Do you know who her then boyfriend was? Yeah, Chucky. Uh, a recent Charles cameo. Ray. No, no. We see a cameo on this Losers Club or on the Halloweenies actually. Brad uh, Pitt. Yeah. Oh, I was Brad just gonna joke. Oh. Brad Pitt. How about that? Yeah, he called in. Yeah, recently. Yeah. yeah, Brad Pitt. If you listen to our Beetlejuice commentary, I wasn't on the episode, but he apparently called in to the commentary. So that sounds that sounds like an awesome time. I haven't listened to it yet. Got some cool like leads about, um, you know, Beetlejuice too. Beetlejuice too. Yeah, because yeah, Plan B nice is, is producing it. So that sounds pretty awesome. Though. Well, Mike, I'll be sure to check out this documentary. And you said it was on what, what's that streaming service again? Screenbox. You can get Screenbox on. I believe uh, it just was added to Apple. We have a you know they have a fast channel as well. Uh, I, d- I did Fast have and a, Furious, the Fast and Furious channel, yeah, which cool. is Fast X. That. It did I'm so in. well; it's on it's on VOD now, I think, right? <laughs> so Universal really fast tracked that into the release. But um, I think it's like number four worldwide at the box office this year. But yeah, I think it's doing just fine. But so, for some reason, they decided to unload it the three weeks later on VOD. It's well, bizarre. you can buy it; you can't rent it. Yeah, I have a question though. You mentioned mm. the strike. Do we feel that's absolutely going to affect season three of Chucky, right? I feel like they, they started filming this a while ago, and okay. I have not heard anything one way or the other. Granted, I haven't been on Twitter.com in months, so maybe there's more information there. Well, and but they I have can not heard still, anything official. If they have the episode scripted already, which yeah. I think for Chucky they would, they can keep filming, but they can't make any changes But the on complication set. with that is, that's the complication, is that yeah. every writer that's talked about this that works on shows says... So I think House of the Dragon initially was going to keep going, and they they were like, these things change all the time. Yeah, you know what I mean. You can't. It just doesn't work, or you well, actually you, get you know. A, even something like um, I was talking to a, a friend who's who's in the industry uh, the other day, and she was saying that uh, you know with the strike, and she's she's seeing companies that are continuing to film, but say for instance you. Uh, you need rain in your script, right? And then, and you've gone to a place where it's supposed to be raining or vice versa. And that starts raining when it's not supposed to, you can't do any write arounds for that. And then you've lost a whole day of shooting. You've lost money. Um, yeah. I mean, I think stuff gets adjusted on the fly, not just based on lines and character choices, but set logistics. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I show like Chucky is probably pretty set. And I feel like most of it's done on, Sound stages, I think it's not like a ton of outside stuff, but I I don't know. I hope I love it that is, show. But I you know, words going. have to get adjusted every once in a yeah. while. I just don't think it's worth the risk, honestly. Yeah, but well, um, it's wild. Wish everybody said, the best. It's wild that you said House of Dragon. Uh, you know, was going to con- con- keep continuing because you know that's definitely like a franchise that uh, you know doesn't like to go without a writer. <laughs> oh boy, <laughs> zing. Well, They'll give George more time to write a, a book that he's been promising sure. to write for fucking 12 years. And I got to reread all those fucking books because I was 2031, maybe, right? Yeah. yeah, right before I'm dead, probably. Hopefully 2061. Yeah. Uh, just give me the 80. I'll be happy with that. Okay, well, Dan or Rachel, have you, either of you seen this, this England documentary? Or should we... Uh... I haven't yet, but I am... I mean, I just... I think it was actually <laughs> Megan Navarro, uh, lead 
film critic for oh, bloody disgusting. disgusting. Who <laughs> she? I think she. I think it was her that was saying something about like, you know, we just need to appreciate these people while they're still around. Like, there's, yes. mm-hmm. you know, so often we don't actually start talking and having these like really appreciative career long conversations about people until they're unfortunately no longer with us, and it's yep. like that's silly. Clearly, you know, Robert England has had an amazing career. 100% we're celebrating. So let's celebrate it now. Like, why not? And I I love that because he does have such a, you know, fascinating career even before he started doing horror films. Yeah. And I have heard that the documentary goes into that as well. So I definitely want to check it out because, and also I will say I checked it because I didn't have Screenbox and I was like, oh, let me see how much this is. And that's pretty dang affordable. I am in no way affiliated with Bloody Disgusting. So this is just me being, <laughs> saying like, I was like, oh, that's actually like, really cheap and doable that's awesome but yeah because robert england i love seeing him in like older 70s movies too and it's just cool seeing him out of context as like a young like a really kind of attractive guy and seeing i mean he's in he's like a surfer right he was a surfer he He talks about surfing too yeah Yeah, he's he gets punched out by charles bronson and saint ives and like i love that and like seeing him as like a street tough next to jeff goldblum when they're like young babies like that's amazing so I, I think that that's it's just great having something like this about somebody that clearly is such an icon and such a genuine, genuinely kind person. Like, I know anybody who's ever met him at a convention can say that. Like, he's just so sweet and kind and takes the time. And so it's great having something like this celebrating him for sure. Yeah, he just totally embraced the fame uh, from almost 40, God, almost 40 years ago next year, right, for Elm Street? Yeah, that's not wild. Wow, that's insane. But I mean, yeah, it's a good point, Rachel, because so many of these people that we've admired growing up, I mean, he's, what, 75 now, I think? 76. You know? I mean, they're getting older. They're getting older. Yeah. And it's just, yeah, like you said, it's good to celebrate them now as opposed to them trending the day they die. Like that, you know yeah. what I mean? I don't want that to happen for me. Hey, but, and, uh, speaking of weddings, Robert England's birthday is on my wedding anniversary, so there we go. It's <laughs> all it full yeah. circle. I wonder, but I, I, I doubt it was as hot as hell as it was in Chicago on that day. I'll tell you right now. Maybe as hot as a boiler room. Who knows? But uh, one place it probably wasn't as hot as though was uh, this toy factory where we're going to head right now to talk about the history, as well as the cast and crew in a section that we I wouldn't say affectionately call because it's just. You know, convenient. It's called Playland Toys. I got the Strangler, Wombash, and Van Buren! All right, so we mentioned in our Child's Play 3 episode that horror in the mid-1990s, even the early 1990s, was in the disaster zone. The big franchises were dead. Jason Goes to Hell, a New Nightmare, Curse of Michael Myers did not do great financially. Hellraiser was heading to direct a video, and by the way, folks, it's been 30 years since there's been a Hellraiser movie in theaters, which is really weird to me, of all the movies. But the fourth Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which has multiple titles, it was kind of in a release limbo even during this time. Uh, we were in a land, basically, of Children of the Corn straight-to-video sequels and occasional failed attempts at franchise starters. I saw Brain Scan in theaters which was what? definitely a franchise starter. Anybody I mean, see too. Brain Scan? You, oh, oh, Mike, you saw it in theaters. Yeah, of course. I'm, you know, I saw it. <laughs> Dan yeah. was like, I don't get it. <laughs> I thought I, Brian of Chucky was confusing. But yeah, Brain Scan? This guy, is this, is this what really happened? The, uh, the poster Rachel, for Brain Scan awesome. Were you just stunned that I saw it in general or that uh, you yeah, were jealous I, I don't, saw it? I don't, I don't know why, like, yeah, I guess I just had to look up what year it came out. Really, 1994. Trickster was happening in 1994. Trickster. Or, that's, yeah, I, I don't know. 
that was definitely a, a movie. That was probably like the fourth R-rated movie I saw in theaters, too. I just have it uh, scanned into my own brain for some reason. Yeah. I'll, I'll uh, say I'm probably the only person in that actually went out and bought the score on cassette in 1994. Oh my God. Because I love the George S. Clinton score for Brain Scans. Amazing. It's like a really good wait, wait, piano wait. score. George S. Clinton did the score? Not the Parliament Funkadelic. It's just that George not, And not Bill Clinton's brother. <laughs> no, not Bill Clinton's <laughs> brother. It's a George third S. George. Yeah, he's done, I mean, he runs the gamut in terms of what his, you know, career is attached to, but uh, that, that score is awesome and the, I don't know, the weird sort of post-hair metal, weird sludge rock stuff that's on there is awesome. We're very strange because it's a very nice, almost like Lalo Schifrin score. That's yeah, it's a high compliment and, for brain and it, it, But it's really good. But then all of a sudden, I'll go to like <laughs> like on the score, and I just remember like rewinding it on my talk boy, just being like, "Fuck this song" or whatever. But yeah, yeah, I have a feeling we might be talking about some songs like that later on in the episode. Um, but but we'll see. Listen, I will say though, by the time 1996 rolled around, namely that winter, a little movie called Scream arrived on the scene and that did change everything. So to give us a crash course and how the success of scream immediately affected horror cinema, I'd like to introduce our, how the success of scream immediately affected horror cinema correspondent, Mike Rothman. Mike, go ahead. Hey there. Thanks. Thanks, Justin. Um, (laughs) Well, we got to kind of go back to the beginning. So, you know, the horror genre had dropped to a 2.5% market share by 1996. (laughs) And that was down from 3.9 to, in 1995 i lost a lot of money that year tell yeah you what. yeah just just little justo over there just you know betting galore on all these uh dtv or should be dtv movies but what's telling is that scream was still the highest grossing movie of 1996 despite only counting for like two weeks of that year mm. so because it was released you know in december so it only had a little bit of runway mm-hmm. to actually gain the thing but it still ended up being the highest grossing movie that year which you know says a lot and that was $39 million in that, that, that means the highest grossing movie of, of, of 96 in horror was $39 million. Um, and that's pretty good considering the, you know, the, the competition, whatever. But still, if you only two for weeks. inflation, it's, it's really, it's, it's, it sounds a lot better than, now than it would It have, does, anyway. yeah. But it's still astounding, though, it's like in the last two weeks. So, mm-hmm. and then, you know, it's also pretty unreal when you consider the fact that Species made $60 million in 1995. So nothing in all of 96 come close to that and so you know i and and honestly when you look back it it, you get it i mean because outside of like a few favorites that are adored now like you know you got like from dust till dawn the craft the frighteners even thinner it's pretty desolate um so that all changes in 97 which saw the market share go from 2.49 to a whopping 7.50 wow yeah uh which is almost almost where it's at today so right now we're about nine to ten percent, but you have to factor in the fact that Hollywood was making far more movies in the late '90s and also far more varied movies. Like the slate was definitely far more diverse than it is today. So you know, arguably you could really just boil it down today to superhero movies, sequels, and horror. Really, yeah. back then, back then like, I think what The Phantom had come out. Right? Exactly. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, there's so much shit. Anyway, 1997 though. It did benefit from two, well, three big slasher movies. You know Scream 2 was in there. Can either of you guess the other two slashers in 97 that, that were also big, that were in Yes, the top? I know one. Which I know one? one? I know you did last summer, right? Yeah. That's one? Does anyone Justin? know the other one? Phantoms. I, no, Urban Legend? Phantoms. Uh-uh. Urban Legend? Uh-uh. Uh, Valentine? It's kind of a trick question. No. 
Oh, trick Valentine question. was like 2000, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. It's not a trickster question. It's a trick question now. Oh. It's Scream. <laughs> Brain Scan 2. So it's, it's Scream. So Scream oh, and Scream, scream 2. 2. And I know you did last summer were the highest at that time. So Oh, yeah, because it went <clears> over. Yeah. Okay. Because beyond You're that, right, that was a really nasty. That was a nasty trick question. It was. It was a little. It was a little mean. You know, you might say I'm uh, the the trickster myself. Uh, but beyond those slashers, it's actually a pretty old school slate. It's still very similar or akin to what the '90s were before Scream. So you get like Anaconda, which was the third highest grossing horror movie of '97. You mean these scars? You mean these scars? Or the wink. Owen oh. Wilson swallowed. I remember being upset that Owen Wilson dies in that movie. And then you also get the legal thriller the devil's advocate to round it out. So um, not really, you don't really see a lot of the scream influence on there because beyond scream two, which, you know, the, when I, when I talk about the scream influence, the literal influence of the movie, like the meta self-referential stuff, I, I mean, scream and scream two are really the only ones on there. Cause I, I, I would argue that I know what you did last summer is more of a throwback to like the seventies slashers than I would say the stuff that we get with, I mean, I get it that it's young teens and m- many of them were in you know, the scream like franchise movies, but like, I know you did last summer is not very referential to anything. I mean, no, it's not it's subversive ba- based on a book too. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's an ad- adaptation. So. They definitely but, made changes to the book to make it more. I mean, yes. it has that Williamson t- touch, right? So it does, but they, he's not like, sit, she's not like sitting there being like, Oh, this is just like, you know, an Agatha Christie novel or something like that. You know, it's just not, it's, <laughs> it's, it's very, it's very, you know, uh, it plays it's, it's plays it as grounded as you can. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, does anyone know the other Sarah Michelle? We've we mentioned two Sarah Michelle Geller. I know you did last summer. Scream two. Cruel and, Intentions. Nope. What is the other? Sarah, what is the other Sarah Michelle? What's Geller? that one where she's like a cook or something? No, no, no. I'm not simply <laughs> resistible. <laughs> There's yeah. something else though that came out that really pushed the Scream vibe. Oh, Buffy. Yeah. So yeah, Buffy's sure. making it. So you really got Buffy. You got the Scream sequels, and that's really pushing it. But 98, the year of the bride, as we'll call Mm. it. Here's a rundown of all the top performing films, horror films of 98. And you can decide whether or not you attribute this movie's success to Scream. This will be a fun game. Yeah. So number one at the box office, Halloween H2O. Yeah. Well, I think it definitely helped, but it also has Halloween names. It does. Yeah. Yeah. Jamie Lee Curtis was back. That didn't hurt. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Two, I still know what you did last summer. At that 100%. point, yeah. that was ninety eight. Mm-hmm. God, that movie. Sucks. I know it feels late. I feel like I associate that more with early ninety nine, two thousand. Yeah, ninety nine, two thousand. Yeah, that's crazy. That the I would, I'd argue, I still know at that point does lean more yes. into the screen. Vibe. Yeah, sure. Yep. the Jack Black character alone. Okay, <laughs> third one. I just <laughs> revisited this last <laughs> night. Oh, that's it's it's rough. Go watch oh, Club Dread instead. No Club Dread. Yeah, I just thought that yeah. so much better. Number three. This one, I think, resounding yes, but Urban Legend. Yep. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Uh-huh. Starring yeah. Robert England. Oh, oh that's yeah, right. That's yeah. true. He goes, that's urban legend. <laughs> like, anyway, uh, number four, Bride of Chucky, which we'll talk about in a second. Hold the thoughts. Number five, The Faculty. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. Didn't you, you, Justin, what was your take on The Faculty? It was like an unofficial stream sequel, like in the well, same all, universe. Yeah. Are these all Dimension? Urban Le- was Urban Legend to mention? So I still know is Sony Pictures, Urban Legends, Sony Pictures, Halloween Show is technically, it's, it's Dimension, but it's uh, under here, it's listed as Miramax. But yeah, Dimension did both faculty and Halloween Show. Yeah. Dimension was under the Miramax spanner, so yeah. Beyond that, you get the Psycho remake. Oof. Yeah. Not really. Universal. 
But you could tell they were probably capitalizing on the success of Scream. Well, there's a certain song in the trailer for that movie that is uh, also in the, the film Brave Chucky. So, oh, interesting. Dewey's okay. theme. <laughs> Dewey's theme, and then to round uh, keep it out, Dewey's theme in mind, Dan, because no, that, I we'll actually be do have about some, that later on too. All right, I have yeah. some thoughts about that. So, and then vampires, John Carpenter's vampires, which oh. very underrated, 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 disagree, I'm sorry. I like vampires. Hard off. Very rough. disappointing experience for me in that theater that day. That was the first Carpenter movie I ever saw in movie theaters on its first run. And, uh, oof. LA was yeah. mine. And I, th- I think that movie is an improvement over escape from LA, but well, I well, haven't well, seen LA in a while, but I don't remember. Loving that <laughs> well, to be fair, Caffrey's a big fan of James Woods and his politics. So, um, <laughs> I just like his politics, not his yeah. movies. I want to make that clear. You, you, yeah. Every time you see him, remind of his Twitter account. You're, you're like, like, let's fire up. Yeah. yeah, I'm so glad he's not like the the libertarian of Salvador days. But um, okay, <laughs> so what's odd about this is that the market share in '98 went from 7.5 percent to 4.52 percent. Weird. So I was looking at this, and I think it's because <laughs> there wasn't a new screen movie, and I really mm. do think that that was the event movie during this era. Instead, we kind of get more of the imitators. And I, you know, we went through a lot of them just now. And I think that as anything in Hollywood, diminishing returns starts piling up, you know, it's not scream. It's this, but it's not scream. But even so you could still see that there's a, you know, a lot more box office going in to these movies. And I think that, you know, you get to see the, the fact that a lot of them are capitalizing on this trend. So I want to say, that when you look at the, you know, it did go down to 98, but 99, it rebounded so big mm. and the market share actually doubled and mm. it, it amounted to a staggering 8.23%, which is the highest percentage until 2017 when it would reach 9.69% again. Now for fun, can you guess why in 1999 and 2017, the genre reached such epic heights. What movies would you attribute to the success? Oh, man. Now, for, See, let's go funny. with 99. Let's go with 99. Okay. That's what I'm trying to think because I have like 97, 96, 98 like in the bank, but 99. Am I, is it something that's so obvious or mm-hmm. is it definitely horror, Scream horror 3? or is oh, it no, something no, no, else? No, 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 no. Found footage. Blair Witch. Yep. Oh, you got oh, it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there we go. That changes everything. There we go. Okay. Now, here's the craziest thing. So it's, you know, I, I mentioned that it's 8.23% in 99. I, and I lean on the numbers, the greatest box office site you could go out there. I use it for everything. All my sales pitches is awesome. But what's wild is that they didn't count the Sixth Sense. And the Sixth Sense was the second highest grossing oh, movie that year. So absolutely I would, a horror movie. It's absolutely a horror, movie. A horror and movie. And I think if you include it, you get up to like probably like 14, 15%. Yeah, that was a huge hit. It, so. was t- it, it made $280 like million. Lot of, there's a lot of movies. Like even the previous year, right? Like you had like Wild yeah. Things yeah. with Campbell. Like I think that's yeah. clearly. And like capitalizing off the stars of Scream and like yeah. those movies. There's a lot of spinoffs. Even if it wasn't specifically horror, it's like you're still capitalizing on their popularity. It was definitely a thriller films. though. You know, it's yeah. like a horror thriller. Yes. So. Yeah. Well, I mentioned 2017 just real quick. And you know, Anyone know why 2017? Oh, the Blair Witch reboot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, get Out? No, think about our podcast. Our oh, other podcast. Uh, they announced the new Halloween series, right? No, no, no. I'm talking the other podcast, Losers oh, Club. Oh, it. It. Yeah. It. yeah. It's so chapter that was, one. Which is the highest grossing horror movie of all time at this point. So big year for the genre. Long story short, though, I think you could see with these numbers that the sarcastic self-referential style definitely did boost the genre. But ultimately, I feel... It was the ingenuity that made it 
mildly sustainable because I mean, 99 found footage. I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily attribute Blair Witch to the scream other than the no, fact that no, no, not at all, not at all. Other than you could maybe say, well, it's a mockumentary, which has some meta roots, but really I think 98 is really the la- is like the big year that you get the sort of, you feel the influence of this. And honestly, you get it in Bride. I mean, Bride, I mean, it's pretty self-referential, but I would say, you know, I mean, and they, and they make it pretty blunt with the fact that in the beginning you get the lockers. And then it's also very s- subtle with little things. Like, like I was rewatching it this morning and I just noticed that like David mentions like, oh, they, you wouldn't hurt a fly, which is clearly like a, s- a little kind of nod to- Psycho. Psycho. So I, I don't know. I, I, I guess I'm not a huge fan of, of meta- Stuff I just think it gets a little too cheeky and fun, but I do think Bride of Chucky works in that respect. I think it's one of the better, for lack of a better word, scream imitators. When I wouldn't even call it that, but yeah. But I think you could argue too that because of Scream's success and like some of the following films that obviously like did well, even if they weren't at Scream's level, that allowed studios or wanted you know they wanted to take a risk on films like Blair Witch, which could then completely re-energize. I, I just I have a hard time imagining that had Scream not happened and it had remained as stagnant that somebody would have necessarily like looked at Blair Witch and been like, oh yeah, this is a huge opportunity. Oh, 100%. Well, it's a real yeah. butterfly effect thing there. You know, yeah. does it even happen? Like you said, does it, does it happen, but nobody sees it? You know, it's one of those things. You, it's, it's the zeitgeist just in a certain lost way. Lost in the time. woods forever. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh man, the movies. Am I right? <laughs> I'll say this about Scream and Brad Chucky, though, and I think this is a good point. Don Mancini made in a, is a 2013 in- interview series that he did around the time of Curse of Chucky, and he kind of spent 15 minutes on every movie. It's really, really great, really informative. It's on YouTube. You can check it out. I can't remember who interviews him, but um, anyway, he uh, acknowledges the Scream era influence, but he makes a good point when he says that Scream, despite like the meta stuff, it was still earthbound. And, quote, remained tethered to reality in a way that Bride of Chucky does not. And I totally get what he's coming from with that. It, is, it still feels like another level of reality compared to what Scream is doing in that first one, besides seeing Wes Craven dressed up as Freddy. You know what I mean? So, Mike, thanks a lot for the, the, the B.O. And I do mean box office, Ooh. if I want to be perfectly clear on that. <laughs> so, yeah, so Scream had relaunched mainstream horror in a, in a new and exciting way and this led universal studios to dig deep to see what franchises that they had for horror and well they dug as deep as chucky did when he buried the tommy doll in child's play too <laughs> because they didn't take too long to realize that their only modern viable property uh, was child's play and as to the plot line of the fourth child's play entry uh, legend and the internet have it that the idea arose when a co-creator longtime child's play producer David Kirshner saw a poster or VHS box for Bride of Frankenstein. And it would have been funny if he had saw a poster for like Reds or Chinatown and still was like, I'm going to do a movie called Bride of Chucky. <laughs> but that's, that's where my mind goes. Uh, so yeah, anyway, for, yeah. So as for the Bride of Frankenstein, what, what specific parallels or even twists on the, the formula of that movie? do we see when it comes to, uh, you know, Bride Frankenstein and, and Bride Chucky? Anybody have any, any takes on that? Well, there's, there's the, obviously they, you know, see footage of the movie in it, but even beyond yeah. that, something I really noticed on this rewatch that I didn't quite pick up on last time was, I know we talked about the movie leaning into the 90s zeitgeist and scream and all that, but aesthetically it actually does look in parts 
like a classic universal monster movie, the same way Jason Lives does, which is yeah. also another very meta horror movie. Just the graveyard scenes, even the way the trailer park is is kind of lit with those really starkly contrasted lines of shadow. Mm-hmm. Even the river that's outside the trailer park looks like the waterways they use in Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, because they were filming in California, not you know, not not like uh, Germany or wherever it's supposed to be. So it's funny because I. F- I think when I was younger, I just thought, oh, yeah, they're just like kind of cheaply using this concept of the bride, right? But no, I actually think this movie does more so than any other Chucky movie have a lot of debt owed to James Whale. And, and, you know, if we want to get really deep with it, I think James Whale had a very keen sense of how to mix camp with actual horror and pathos as well. So uh, I'm not, look, no, no diss to Ronnie Yu. I'm not saying Ronnie Yu was like, was like the next James Whale necessarily, but I do think it's playing in genre in the same way that Whale was really doing with both Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah, it makes sense. And I think just looking at the creation, right? This is in, in, in Bride Frankenstein, you know, she rejects the monster, but in this movie, it's the monster rejecting the human. I think that's a kind of a twist on that, which I enjoyed a lot. But Rachel, do you have any, uh, any parallels or twists you'd like to talk about? Yeah, I mean, just the character of Tiffany, like, yeah. in the, so at the very beginning of Bride of Frankenstein, when it's like Mary and, you know, it's just that kind of that opening scene when it's all stormy out and she's talking about how, or I can't even remember the guy's name, but he's like, you love like all these, like the spooky, like terrible things. And why are you afraid of lightning? And, and it, I just think that that's something we see with Tiffany too, how she's very into you know murder and this serial killer like she likes these darker things but is also like just a romantic at heart Mm -hmm. (laughs) and so i think i think her character is very much like how you know mary shelley's character in bride of frankenstein is presented kind of that that duality of like i can like dark things but like i still would love a man if he just did the dishes after i made him a bunch of swedish meatballs you know these very traditional kind of mix of ideas i see well well on that and mancini even said that Tiffany, she's evil. You know, she's a serial killer, obviously. But yeah. like you said, Mancini even said this, and I quote, like, she's a, a true romantic. Mm-hmm. So you do still feel sorry for her, yes. you know, in its own way. And that, I think a lot of that goes down to the Jennifer Tilly performance. Also, I think Elsa Lancaster played both the Bride Frankenstein and Mary Shelley. Yes. In she Bride did, Frankenstein, yeah. which is well, another, I, yeah, there you go. There's also, too, I mean, and, you know, I'm hesitant to make too much of a connection to this because just because they have the same sexuality doesn't mean they're the same filmmaker, but James Whale, gay man, Don Mancini, yep. gay man. And I I think Bride of Chucky, and especially as the series progresses from here on out, is once again much more explicitly leaning into that, into queerness yeah. than Bride of Frankenstein was. But if James Whale, with everything he did, had he had sort of su- more implicitly leaning into that, if that makes sense. I know James Whale directed Brian Frankenstein, didn't write it, whereas Brian Chucky, Don Mancini wrote it, didn't direct it. But I, Mancini's a smart guy, and he has a pretty expansive knowledge of the genre as a whole. I, I can't help but wonder if he was maybe thinking about kind of standing on the shoulders of giants a little bit in that regard. You've also got this thing where, you know, Chucky and Tiffany in this film, they where they just wanted to be human again, mm-hmm. right? Like, that's their whole motivation. And obviously, like, Frankenstein, we see him, because most of Bride of Frankenstein is not even about the bride. Like, it's all about <laughs> no, Frankenstein. No. Yeah. It's just him, like, trying to be accepted and be seen as human, almost. Like, we see, there's, like, that scene where he's in, like, the cabin with the, you know, the, the blind guy, and they're just, mm-hmm. he's learning how to speak. And he's just like, oh, this guy actually is treating me like a human. And 
it's very different motivations. Like I'm not saying the characters are the same, but you know, we see Chucky just wanting to be human again and being seen as human and that's their whole motivation. So very tongue in cheek, but I think that that comparison can absolutely be made. Yeah. Mike, what about you? Uh, I was thinking about like the hunters in Bride and just how, you know, when the hunters are, they stumble upon the cottage, it kind of reminds me of, I mean, this is a loose parallel, but when they're at the, the, what's the motel, Mm-hmm. And they stumble upon the other couple, and then you know Tiffany and Chucky decide to kill him. And then, <laughs> I love that. Uh, copulate in the first, the first of many doll sex movies to come throughout the. Uh, well, actually, no, I can only think of Team America. But I, well, I, I thought of Team America watching this time. Like yeah. they had to have seen Brave Chucky and <laughs> gone sure. off that like, stage very notes. similarly. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I other than that, I mean, th- and there's also there's the love. You know, I think we already mentioned it before, but just the the idea of like Henry and Elizabeth are married. In the same way of, um, I don't even remember the two characters' names, Jade, and um, <laughs> that's the thing. I just all I care about is Tiffany and Chucky. <laughs> least, so, yeah. yeah, the other, the, the hunk uh, who's always yelling or getting Jade angry. Jade and Jesse. Jade and Jesse, yeah. Jade and Jesse. You fuck. <laughs> yeah, oh, I got that later. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, this movie also could have easily, and probably gotten away with it, just totally leaned into the Bride of Frankenstein. Like, he discovers he's trapped forever and now wants a doll to come alive. They could have easily done that, but, you know, you get the joke, and then they really did make it its own thing where the parallels aren't so obvious throughout the movie. And I think it's to its credit and to its success, obviously. And we've already been talking about Mancini a lot, and this movie led to another advancement in his career. So, I mean, he actually wanted to be the director for this movie and had David Kirshner's backing, but he had not directed anything before. And this was a reboot of a franchise that had been gone. And they really wanted to make sure that it was in, you know, capable and just hands of somebody who's done it before, essentially. And, but he was elevated to the role of producer. And that was a huge deal for him. He was a constant presence on set. And he was a real valuable resource to the other actors for some reasons we'll get into in a bit. I was thinking about this. His, his role is so unique when compared to all the other franchises that, we, that we've covered because, you know, John Carpenter created Halloween. He, he wrote the second one, but then he was gone after that. Wes Craven wrote Elm Street, more or less disappeared with the exception of a story credit for Dream Warriors. And he obviously came back for New Nightmare a decade later. Sean Cunningham did Friday 13th. Sorry, Victor Miller. Uh, Wes Craven, you know, directed the first four screen movies before he passed away. And Kevin Williamson was gone after the two movies. Sam Raimi been involved in some capacity for all the Evil Dead entries. But Don Mancini has co-written or written every single Child's Play entry of this franchise, not the reboot, obviously. And I, this is a question I've been thinking about. I'm not talking about the best work right? The, the greatest work of all of them. But would you say that Don Mancini is kind of like the ultimate, at least modern horror franchise king? Yes. Yeah, Dan? Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, I've talked about this before. I'm still, I can't think of another series that, and once again, you're not counting the reboot. I can't think of another series that has had this many twists and turns and not done a soft reboot, not done a retcon, not done multiple timelines, not done a multiverse. I, and watching this, having watched the TV show, Chucky, I'm like amazed at how he threads this together. And I've said yeah. this before. I think it's because they, for the most part, have had one guy kind of serving as the glue throughout all this. Like it, it, it felt, it feels like he's shepherded this series into something that is 
having its apex with the Chucky TV show, and it, it feels like a culmination of everything that's come before it. And yeah, there's some entries that are be- better than others, of course, but I love that we get this single through line, and that to me does feel like this sort of almost acrobatic feat these days. And so I, I would call him the modern master. Now, Mike, you said that you a couple times already in this podcast that you're kind of like the horror expert. You know, you've been a horror expert yeah. for thirty years. You know, <laughs> what, what what do you think? I mean, I, I see like the your the your your wheels are spinning right now, trying to figure out another comp. But what do you think about that take? I mean, I agree. I think that in the sense of just it being the elasticity of this is pretty impressive. Mm. Um, I think as we go on, I'll probably discuss whether or not it's uh it, that 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 elasticity is has lasted as long as we want to say it did um because i think it certainly has is overstretched at points but uh yeah i mean it's 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 very impressive i think that's my biggest applause i mean like we mentioned daniel farron's on this podcast you know was it five years ago six years Mm -hmm. ago at this point about with halloween six and how the what we love about that movie is just the fact that you know it should have been I mean, honestly, when you think about it and you're looking at what happened in Halloween 5, there's so much distance. It's like, yeah, you could have just rebooted it. But they didn't, and they, they stuck to their guns, and we applauded them for that. So you do have to do that with Mancini. Um, but I, I do think there's something to be said about Raimi being so heavily involved in the, the Evil Dead franchise. Like, I, I always think of yeah. just the idea of, like, that remake, or the, not remake, but the reboot, whatever you want to fucking call it, the 2013 Fede Alvarez movie it's pretty wild how involved he was still in that. And the fact that we still de- ended up getting Ash versus evil dead. So I, I do think it's like between like Ramey and Mancini in that sense, because sure. it's the quality shows too, you know, like there's something to be, I know you said not to mention the quality and all, or the factor it in, but like, I think when you look like you could run a story into the ground as, and still go. And we've seen that multiple times. We've seen so many, I mean, look at Marvel right now, like Jesus Christ, like we just continue to keep this up and it's like, uh, they're, they're, I don't want to bring up Marvel. We'll get another one-star review. But like, I just think of like, it is easy to continue the story, but it's a matter of like the success of it. I think there's some peaks and flows or, you know, some peaks and valleys in, in Mancini's storyline here, but more peaks than, than valleys I'd argue. But with, with Raimi, it is kind of interesting just that they keep finding new ways to do this, but granted less entries too. So yeah, I guess I'd give the, 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 the nod to Mancini here. Yeah. I think when you also mentioned the the TV series, he's still, yeah. Show running basically, so that's yeah. a whole other avenue, you know. And yeah. and to be fair, Ramy though was involved in the Evil Dead TV series too, so the comps make sense to me. What about you, Rachel? What do you think about that? Oh, I I totally do. I think that I mean, when I think of Child's Play, I mean, outside of Chucky and the characters and stuff like behind the scenes, Don Mancini is who you think of. Like it's mm-hmm. who you give credit to. And this, I'm like Dan was saying, it's like I'm just like shocked how cohesive i guess this whole franchise has become like i was a little nervous when the show was first announced but the way that they were the way that they're constantly able to evolve this franchise and yet still tie it to previous entries and develop the lore but not disregarding the previous lore and just weave all that together in a way that actually works i I mean i guess that's the perk of having you know a uh, a supernatural elements and a crazy creepy doll involved (laughs) like you're able you talked about like the groundedness of scream versus you know this not being tethered to that world that's the benefit of not having those tethers i guess is that you're able to make up these new rules and don mancini's just continues to do that but because he knows the franchise so well i mean who else would know like oh i can pull that from there and like remember those kind of things and guaranteed he just 
as you know, thinking about this stuff all the time and has a journal somewhere where he's just like, oh yeah, I could totally do that and scribbles it in. And I, I so, wouldn't doubt it. He's probably got his yeah. own personal Chucky Bible, right? And yeah. When we think about these other franchises too, and, and we think about all the times that, you know, you hear about Carpenter and, and Crave and other people having to constantly fight like the producers and studio people. But I think it was also extremely important to have basically David, I mean, not basically, essentially, literally David Kirshner involved to kind of shepherd him along. You know, I mean, he mm-hmm. knew Mancini from that first Blood Buddy draft when he was still in college. And like I said, just kind of just shepherd him along to co-writing, writing, producing, and then ultimately directing. I think it was extremely important to have somebody in his corner like that, whereas those other people didn't necessarily have it, and it probably drove them crazy, and they didn't mm-hmm. want to have anything to do with what they started. So I do think he's unique in that respect. And, you know, so I mentioned he didn't get the directing gig for this movie. He would get it for Seed of Chucky, which we'll talk about next month. But who did get the the, uh, the gig here? And the answer came not stateside, not even Canadian side, a country that we'll definitely be discussing in a second. It came from Hong Kong in the form of one Ronnie Yu. And we actually discussed you, good God, five years ago. We've been doing this for a long time. Five years ago on our Freddy vs. Jason episode, a movie that you directed. But we'll do a quick refresher course here because this leads literally into his first, uh, well, we're not going to count Warriors of Virtue, which was uh, his first what, you're American not? film. Yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna skip over that. It's like Karate Kangaroos. <laughs> karate King. It sounds great on paper, as I always say. <laughs> but let's go back in time. I mean, you've got director credits going back all the way to 1979 in Hong Kong, but those were mainly action movies. He did The Postman Strikes Back and Legacy of Rage, the latter of which lives the debut of the late Brandon Lee. And in the 90s, he did the comedies Great Pretenders and Shogun and Little Kitchen. So by now, you're asking yourselves, well, why was he hired to do the fourth entry of an American horror franchise? Uh, the answer lies not with A Bride of Frankenstein, but uh, A Bride with White Hair, a U film from 93. Here's the plot. Zoe, a master swordsman, is in charge of an army chosen to protect China from an evil cult. During a battle with the enemy, Zoe falls in love with Lian, a young woman who was raised by wolves and then adopted by the Siamese twins who led the cult. The two seek a life of peace and quiet, but when Zoe's colleagues are mysteriously slaughtered, survivors believe Lian is the culprit. Zoe finds himself forced to turn against his beloved. So, big hit over there. Mancini and Kirshner really loved it, and when they were thinking about what they would want to do with this franchise, they were highly influenced by this movie. And if you just watch the trailer for The Bride with White Hair, I mean, it looks it looks like Bride Chucky. You know, like the night scenes have that blue wash over them. Cool. Dutch angles, like I, you totally get the hire. Like it was aesthetically pleasing to them, and it, and it corresponds really well, I think, in this movie. Uh, an interview with the website Metrograph that was given at some point in the last couple of years. There's there's no date on the article, which I would, if you're listening, Metrograph, make sure you date your entries in case anybody tries to you know rip off what's being happening here. Uh, I will not charge for that advice. Don't worry. But you, Ronnie, you spoke on what it was like going from Hong Kong cinema to Hollywood. He said, the experience was totally North Pole, South Pole. Uh, In Hong Kong, and I, Justin, found this interesting, the movie-making system is not that, say, solid as in Hollywood. The machine has been there for hundreds of years, whereas making a movie in Hong Kong is like guerrilla warfare, really. And the director is the king. 
Whatever the director wants or asks, you've got to deliver. And every time you start a movie, the script is never ready. (laughs) Only the director knows what they want to shoot the next day. And they will come up with an idea that night and then write it. That's I I did not know that to uh, do a dated Johnny Carson reference. (laughs) And then he said, and this is also interesting. He said, but luckily for myself, because of my handicap, I contracted polio when I was born, which limits my mobility. And it always forced me to plan everything well ahead of time. I've got to plan. I've got to ask people to help me execute my plans. So I grew up being a very disciplined person that helped me tremendously working in Hollywood where you've got to have the script and everything ready. But I didn't have too much problems adapting to the system. And also, I really wanted to learn. I had the mindset, I'm not going over there telling them how great Ronnie you is. I'm going over there to learn. My mind is open. And I want to absorb everything because, you know, Hollywood is Hollywood, man. It's up there on the hill. Hong Kong is just this little small part in the map of the world. That helped a lot. I sort of left my ego at home, uh, end quote. So we've obviously been dissecting movies for years and years, not only on podcasts, not only in written form, but just amongst friends groups over the years. When I, when I talk about that day-to-day Hong Kong filmmaking style, what do you think the pros and cons of that are? compared to the more restrictive Hollywood style. Uh, Rachel, what do you I, would, think? I mean, I, I would think some of the pros would just be, I imagine the cast and crew are just like great at adapting, pivoting, making yeah. it happen, executing, you know, not overthinking things so much and just like, okay, that's what you want. All right, let's do it. Oh, that didn't work. All right, let's do it. Like I have a feeling it's like they would have to be right. If you don't know <laughs> what's going to happen, you just got to be ready to be like, all right, what are we doing? Let's do it. All right, let's go on. I, I mean, having a plan is good, I would imagine. That's also true. That is true. (laughs) Especially Um, on something like of this scale, I would imagine things probably need to get built ahead of time. And so, you know, being able to devote more time to developing sets and studios and experimenting with lighting, like I would think mm -hmm. planning would definitely help with that kind of stuff. Universal Studios, a little more constrictive for sure, especially back in 98. Uh, Mike, what about you? I mean, planning is always key. I mean, like that's what we've learned in you know, just doing this Indiana Jones sidecast, which by the way, if you haven't heard, you can listen now at <laughs> www.patreon.com slash Pod. Where is Indy off to next? Well, grab the red marker and follow us as we uh, chart over, plane over to uh, Akator Temple uh, for Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Anyway, Woo-hoo. I will say, I think having a meticulous director, I'm more lean to the pro. I usually think it works best. And I say that just because all my favorite filmmakers tend to do that. I mean, Michael Mann's probably my favorite film director, film director, and that guy spends, what, 20 years on a project sometimes. So I think it works to its effect. I, I think, ultimately, this is a win because I, I don't think... I, I know that Mancini wanted to direct this movie, but I think you for, for it to come back and to have this type of swing, I think you needed a, a real, a guy, like someone who had a visual palette already that could lean on it. And I think that helps a lot with this film because mm-hmm. as opposed to you allowed, it allows it to have two different lanes, right? So you have, you know, you could focus on the visual elements of this where Mancini was really able to kind of just really, really zone in on the dialogue, the language, the, the narrative. And I think that attention to detail is it manifests on screen. I really do. I think, I think it's actually a pretty precise movie, but um, so I think it's a pro I would say. Yeah. Dan, what about you as somebody who is really still writing in general? Like, how do you feel about the uh, the looseness of 
overseas and, and being more director-based compared to the studio system that we have here in the States? I mean, in general, I'm always a little wary of anything that gives the writer less power because they already have so little power in Hollywood, yeah, um, right? Uh, that being said, there are exceptions to that. There, we've talked about movies on here where we're like, no, the studio interference was actually a good thing, right? It made the script better. It reined the writer in a little bit. I, yeah, I agree with Mike. I think that this gave the series the shot in the arm it needed. Four minutes, he needed to take back complete creative control, which he did with the next movie and still has to this day. I shouldn't say complete creative control, but he's re- gone back to writing and directing everything with the entry after this onward. But I also give Ryan you the credit for making that happen. I kind of think it's funny because my least favorite, favorite parts of this movie in many ways are you know, the kind of 90s zeitgeistness of it. Like, we'll get to the characters, I know, but um, the teens for me like kind of don't do it, and I think some of that those plot points get very convoluted, but I kind of think you needed that director who could be flashy, who could have these kind of good action sequences, who could make the thing just zip along, right? And Mancini's also a good director, but I feel like Ronnie Yu kind of excels at that almost wrestling match aspect of it, which we also see with uh, Freddy versus Jason later on. So I, even though I, in general, I don't think the Hong Kong way of filmmaking is some, I could see that leading to problems as, as someone who is a writer. I think it served it I think I, I think it's you coming aboard. It it did serve him well, and it served Mancini well ultimately too. I mean, have they talked about like did they like working together? I'm assuming they did, but did they talk? No, about they did. Book? And the yeah. thing was, there were some issues, which I'll get into in a little bit about the editing process for this movie. But by all accounts, despite there being kind of a language barrier there, everybody got along with you. That was never an issue, and and he and Mancini got along really well. As a matter of fact, this. Perfectly leads me to my next transition here, because according to the Ray of Chucky book, which is a, this tremendous book on the franchise I've been lauding throughout this whole season, it said that you agreed to work on the film after insisting that he met with Don Mancini, because hmm. he wanted to make sure that they aligned on their vision. And I thought that's, that was awesome. It wasn't like he was going to come over here and say, I'm the director. Like he says in that quote, he, he didn't want to come over and be like, I'm the director, this is my movie, and we're going to do it my way. He wanted to meet with Don Mancini and make sure that they were on the same, the same page. And it's, Imagine that going down after we heard all about that stuff on the first Child's Play with Tom Holland and, and Don Mancini. That was uh, definitely not the case there. And the other, I don't want to say demand like he was an asshole, but the other thing he really wanted to do was bring along his longtime colleagues. You wanted to bring along cinematographer Peter Powell and editor David Wu. Now, Wu also edited John Wu's Hard Boiled and The Better nice. Tomorrow. Good movie. Right? Good. For, like there. Yeah, and Powell did the cinematography for Wu's The Killer. Also good. And went on to win an Academy Award uh, two years after Brian Chucky for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Wild. Wild. That same year, he did the cinematography for Dracula 2000. Oh. How about that? Not yeah. <laughs> the best for last. Yeah, I saw not that bad shit. Crew. I saw that in theaters, but not Drive Chucky. That was a mistake. I, I, oh, I, I saw Dracula 2000 at AMC Pleasure Island 24 as well. Well, that's because you are Dan Dracula Caffer usually. So you that's know, right. One I, knew. I said one day <laughs> I'm going to need to crib this nickname. Yeah, and that's where that nickname comes from. It's from the great Vitamin C starring Dracula 2000. <laughs> I guess we all kind of graduated shortly thereafter. That uh, anyway, not bad crew. And you also said that his his two associates spoke better English than he did. So it's kind of good to have them by his side in case there was any, you know, basically translation that had to be going on there. And I, again, I'm teasing a lot here. But that will absolutely figure 
and to the ultimate outcome of this film. We know the majority of this movie is another first for the franchise. It's a road trip movie. Um, after that first 25 minutes. And there were original drafts that had the road trip taking place further out west in California, Nevada, and whatnot. But this movie actually kicks off somewhere in the vicinity of Lockport, New York. Because on the open, in the opening scene, thanks to the police officers, I think it's on his patch. It says Lockport, New York. Mm. And while the first three Child's Play movies were filmed throughout the U.S. for the first time, this franchise was going to go where only, at least of the franchises that we've covered, only Friday, for the Friday 13th franchise had gone before in Canada. So the vast majority of this movie was shot in and around Toronto, Ontario. And to be fair, to, to the filmmaker's credit, they didn't try to convince us like it was taking place in Chicago again. You know, yeah. it, it, At least Toronto has always been a very reliable stand-in for New York, and I think that was also the case here. Uh, in addition... To all these new people on board for Child's Play, there were two new producers who were brought on to assist in the project. And one of them was conveniently, and I think for the best, a Canadian by the name of Grace Gilroy was able to help out with, you know, new location for this franchise, 100%. What other 1998 film with a year in its title did she also produce, if only as an associate producer? I was, was going to say Titan A.E. I'm like, wait, that's... Oh, no, Titan no. A.E. Dan, it's, it's one of your favorite movies, Dan. One of my... For real? One, one, one of your favorite comedians. Dun, 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 oh, God. Oh, God. You did Blues Brothers 2000. Blues oh, Brothers boy. 2000. Yeah, she Ooh, did. Wow. Oh, man. I had... I have a bad experience with that one because I actually saw it in theaters and I was, I was supposed to meet my then... My first girlfriend of mm. all time. And I was supposed to meet her at the movie and she couldn't make it. And I remember calling my dad being like, ah, it's okay. She can't make it. You know, I want to go see the movie anyway. And, and then he's like, okay, I'll pick you up. And not only was the movie shitty, but then my next three months was really shitty because the parents of that, of, of, of my then girlfriend called my house and asked, uh, Oh, you know, I saw you called or whatever. And my dad's like, Oh, are you the parents of uh, um, my my son's girlfriend? You know, the one that stood up and oh stood up at the God. thing, and like, oh well, God. and then I I didn't I had no clue of this, and I went to school the next day or Monday, and, you know, went up to my then girlfriend. I was just probably going to you know digress on how great Blues Brothers two thousand was, and she just looked at me. and was like, don't ever talk to me again. And, and, I, and oh. I, I had I had to like figure this out and and kind of decide what the hell happened. And I ultimately did, and um, I didn't talk to my dad, uh, and I still don't. And for the last thirty years, I'm just joking. But no, um, no. But I, I just, I just remember being like, I, I, just, I honestly didn't talk to him for weeks because I was well, so fucking angry about it. It sounds but like the Phoebe Cates story from Gremlins. It really <laughs> it's is. I mean, it's, but it's just so. Whenever I see a Blues Brothers 2000, I just think of that, and it's so funny because it's like such a dumb movie. I mean, anyway. it sucks like, on top of that too. Oh, yeah. Like it, it would have been different. Like oh, I had to, oh, I had to watch Scream Two by myself. Like that would have been fun at least. But Blues Brothers 2000, mm. oh, one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Oh, it's seen. awful. Horrible. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I There's a video game one. for it though, so you can always find that. So what? Yeah, it is it oh, is legit God. awful. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Well, the good news for her though, she did go on to co-produce Josie and the Pussycats movie, which is a big cult movie, especially now. Way ahead of its time in terms of its how they did the marketing for that. Yeah, very clever. Uh, she also worked on the scary movie sequels, the ones that were in theaters. I should also say, not not necessarily the latter, or the ones that were successful in theaters. I should say, <laughs> uh, she did work on the Fog remake. We're going to stay positive here, and we're going to move on to the fact that she went ahead and also concentrated on TV. And in recent years, 
She's worked on reboots for 90210, Twilight Zone, and another famous Canadian-based show, The X-Files. How about that? She is stuck in a time period. Yeah, yeah she's stuck, <laughs> but she, she's, she's comfortable with the 90s and apparently the 1960s for Twilight Zone. Yes. Or late 50s, early 60s. Uh, Corey Sienega was the second producer on this, and she would go on to work on Frailty. Really underrated movie. Really, yeah. As well as Seed of Chucky. And she was heavily involved in the final cut that we got for Bri of Chucky. I know you're at the edge of your seats. I promise we'll get to that story soon. But first, I do want to get back to the aforementioned opening scene with the cop and the evidence locker in which we see, you know, a hockey mask, finger knife gloves, a William Shatner-esque mask, and other weapons from famous horror franchises. Uh, funny enough, they were basically as locked up as their franchises were at the time. <laughs> in that uh, Crave interview, I've also been referencing Mancini, says that it's moments like this, plus the extreme meta-commentary that both Bride of Chucky and Seed of Chucky have, that set them apart from the other films and the series. He views these two as, quote-unquote, farces. Now, hmm. we're not throwing around the word farce that much as a society these days. So just in case you don't know what it is, it is... A, com- a comic dramatic work using buffoonery and horseplay and typically include crude characterization and ludicrously improbable situations. So when it comes to Bride and Seed, do you all see where Mancini's coming from and how they contrast as a pair from, you know, Child's Play 1 through 3 and even compared to Curse of Chucky and, and Cult of Chucky? Uh, Mike, what do you think about that? I do. I mean, this is this feels like a reboot. I mean, it it honestly does feel like a new movie. Like when I think of, and I, this is kind of what I'm going to lean on really hard in my final thoughts. But there's a distinction here. Like, I this is a Chucky movie. It's not a Child's Play movie. This mm-hmm. is a Chucky movie, and this is the first of the Chucky movies. I'd argue. I mean, and granted, you could probably say Child's Play Two is, but this is wisely choosing and opting to give us what we've wanted from the get-go. And I, and I was thinking about this. I was like, are we only able to really do this just because there's more budget and because the technology had advanced? Because I think it has. I mean, we'll talk about that in our favorite section. But I think, I, I just wonder, is it, is it, was it just that they were able to finally make it so that you could actually do it where he's front and center the whole time? Or was it just narratively a thing that Mancini finally was able to decide on? Because you watch this movie and you're like, how is he never not the main character? Like he is so front and center in this movie and it's so much fun watching, you know, Chucky be front and center in this movie. It is kind of baffling. And I think this is one of the reasons why I struggle with the sequels in this rewatch for this podcast is that I've so in tune now to just be following Chucky. Like mm-hmm. I, I don't really care about the humans. I really don't. I mean, like, and and obviously the original is different, just because I think it, the family drama adds a little bit more, and the tone of that movie affords the, the the sort of family drama and the cop drama aspects of it all. But when you watch this film, I absolutely see what Mancini is trying to do here. Like, I, I get it. I get that distinction, and I I think this is just a fucking home run for you know for him in that respect. I think it's also a watermark, and. You know, I don't want to spoil too much of a thoughts on this the follow-ups in Jared, but I do I don't know I, th- I don't know if it's ever as good as this. Mm. I'll say. Yeah, Rachel, I what mean, about you? I think that 
You know how like when articles get published online and then everybody gets upset and they're like, hire a horror writer to write this. Stop hiring people who don't know about horror, writing about horror, right? I don't know. I have no idea what you're never, about. Okay. You know, well, <laughs> yeah. I'm kidding. Yes. But like to me, this feels like like Mancini doesn't get enough credit for kind of reading the room and sort of like seeing where things are going because it's he's he knows the genre and he was smart enough to kind of look at these other franchises and see what was happening with them and then apply that here. And like you said, turn the focus on to Chucky, have that kind of self-aware attitude and that approach completely reinvigorated this whole franchise. Because you talked about like Child's Play 3 was, eh, you know, like it wasn't he wasn't the iconic Chucky that we know and love. Like, I feel like this is the film that really solidifies that. And so by kind of him taking a look at Chucky and applying sort of the the logic that these other franchises have and the popularity of that. It's like he projects that onto this film and is like, no, Chucky's an icon. Like, see, even if he wasn't necessarily, I guess, does that make sense? How he, no, it it's does like make maybe sense. he wasn't quite there, but he turns him into that. And by injecting that into this, it completely just revitalizes this whole franchise. And then with a lot of the other choices that I think that align with that, where, you know, we'll talk about the music and like the, how this looks, the idea mm-hmm. of kicking Andy to the curb, like yeah. entirely is just, I mean, that's what you're saying. Like, it's always about Chucky. And finally we get that. Whereas before it's been like, no, but it's, you know, Andy too. And now it's like, nope, like forget Andy. Like yep. <laughs> let's just play around with these dolls and Hey, we're going to add another one on top of it. Even like better. that's, <laughs> Like, it's just brilliant to me. And I think that that only comes from somebody who not only knows this franchise, but is paying attention to what else is happening in the genre and applying that to this film. Yeah, I mean, Dan. we even see it. I, I think even show, I know the showing the Michael Myers mask and the Jason's mask and the Freddy's glove is sort of just a little bit of a joke. But also, I think it goes to what Rachel's saying. It's like saying, no, here's these guys. And yeah, Chucky's in their company, too, now. First yeah. time we get the word Chucky in the title. Has every single one had, right? Yeah, Bride, Sea of Chucky, Curse of Chucky, Cold of Chucky, the show yeah. Chucky. Yeah. Yeah, and as far as, it is funny because I, I look at the Child's Play series as three different phases at first. There's the first three, even though the third is like not quite in line. It's still, I think, in that at least trying to capture that tone of the first two. Yeah. Then you have Seed and Bride. Then you have the Mancini return. And then, and until the show, I did look at them as kind of this trifecta, right? But then with the show, I mean, I think it does stitch all of them together to where it, it makes me appreciate even the third one, right? It's like, okay, the show shows me that Mancini, Mancini even as, at his lowest points, was thinking about this and was mm-hmm. thinking about how all this could be w- part of one same shape. So it's interesting because I going back and rewatching this series, I do see the contrast and I do see it in those distinct phases, but also I just keep getting excited for what's coming down the line. And I, I think I, it makes it easier to meet each of those phases on its own terms, if that makes sense. It does. And I think you could say that, you know, he stitches the movies together as well as Tiffany stitches Chucky together <laughs> at the beginning of this movie. Am I right? Yeah. And even I, I, I took slight pause when I first read that, but I, I understood what he was talking about because even Curse of Chucky, I stick around. We'll be talking about that in a couple months, everybody. But that movie is definitely played much more like the first one in a lot of ways, where it does become a mystery movie again, and it's a haunted house movie. Yeah. That's what it really comes off as. It isn't as over the top as as Bride of Chucky, and especially as as Seed of Chucky. So I mean, I I do. I get what you're all saying, and I also get what he was where he's coming from. 
compared to what came before and what came after. But back to the present, at least back in 1998, uh, again, by all accounts, Ronnie Yu and his Hong Kong crew got along. That rhymed. It got, he got along. Ronnie Yu and his Hong Kong, Hong Kong crew. <laughs> got along with everybody well, but there was a bit of a barrier not having a firm grasp on, on English. And it did lead to some challenges on set. You know, he'd often have to act out what he wanted the puppeteers to do with Chucky and Tiffany. Performers would often seek out Mancini, who was a constant presence on set, for any character work or any adjustments that they had questions about. Now, this didn't necessarily mean it was a negative experience. It just made for a different way of working. And that's something that production designer Alicia Kwan discusses in Reign of Chucky. She says, I would bring him lots of photo suggestions for the sets and characters. They say a picture's worth a thousand words, right? Bringing Ronnie things to look at helped us cut right to the chase. He was able to look at my materials and tell me what he liked and didn't like, which enabled us to communicate better. And he wound up liking a lot of what I brought him in our first meeting. So using visual elements that way worked well, and it made it fun for both of us. On a side note, she also mentioned that when they were scouting for the finale cemetery locations, she said that you and Powell were kind of uncomfortable there, and she approached mm-hmm. them and, and wanted to know what was going on. And basically from a cultural standpoint, people from Hong Kong, China, they're very sensitive about the dead. And so they did not want to film anything in a real cemetery. And so that's why they have a, that, that cemetery Interesting. at the end, which is it's a fake cemetery. Which kind of adds to the charm, Dan. I think, like you said, it does look yeah. like that old school thirties, yeah, like cardboard tombstones kind of thing. Say, yeah, which I, I like. like it, I like that. It fits the vibe and the overall Agreed. look of the entire film. It looks, so, it's a great looking set too. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. It, 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 um, it's a, it worked out. That's what I'm saying in that regard. Now, here's where things get a little bit tricky, which was you kind of have to go back and forth, and that's the thing about history, especially when, when related to Hollywood. Like, who do we listen to? What's the true story here, right? So in that Metrograph interview with you, he says that he was approached to return for Seed of Chucky, which was then going to be called Son of Chucky. Looking back, I'm happy they went with Seed of Chucky, obviously. A seed works and in many gross ways, yes, especially yeah. with the opening credits. But anyway, that's, <laughs> an, that's another podcast we'll get to. But he was also apparently asked to work again in the new TV series, which he still hopes to do eventually. But uh, I also found this article back in October of 2018. It was it was about a Screamfest Q&A that Kirshner had participated in for what was then a 20th anniversary of Bride of Chucky. And you can find this news on Bloody Disgusting. <laughs> you ever heard of it? That uh, pretty good website. I'm going to read a lot of this because it's I found it to be kind of fascinating, so bear with me. But Kirshner said, Ronnie left after we finished the film. He started to work on a cut, and we were not happy with it. I think he just missed home. He missed his wife and his family. Don really stepped up. It was at that point for me that I saw he was now ready to move on to the next film and be the director. He really brought so much to it with how he edited that film with Randy Bricker, who Don has continued a relationship with. It's not that Use Cut was ever completed, but we just saw what he was doing and we were unhappy with it. The pacing was not there. Don and Corey Sienega, we went to the editing room and worked with them. You had shot it all, but the choices and pieces were not there in my mind. For what it would become, end quote. Uh, he did bring up the language barrier, and he did take time, though, to praise Peter Powell, the cinematographer, and saying that he deserves a lot of the credit for the movie. As for Bricker, who was the editor who was brought in after Wu and Yu left, do you know what other 
movie he also assisted in editing? No. I do, but um, it's just because I'm looking at your notes, so oh, I, cool. I don't think well, that's fair. <laughs> it, you know, it's not fair. Uh, Halloween, <laughs> The Curse of Michael Myers, the producer's cut. Oof. He came in and, and worked on that, too. What uh, what Myers mask do you think was used in this? Because I, I was like, it looked like the producer's cut mask, but uh, but then I'm like, maybe it's full. I don't know. Yeah, Mike, what? Uh, what it looks think? like the I, bad one from the from H two O. It, the, the, the it does. I think it's honestly uh, the Don Post ones at the time. Yeah, because mm-hmm. it reminded me of the one I bought when I was little. Around weird this eyebrows. Time. And, yeah. yeah, where you're just kind of like, it's all right. I guess they'll get the idea that it's Michael Myers. Yeah, <laughs> I got it. The one, I mean, the Jason cool. mask looks like shit, but that's the one that's like they didn't even try. It was oh, just that's like, like the Walgreens plastic yeah. one. I, it I would almost get, looks yeah. like the poster for a new beginning. Like, that's it how does. bad the yeah, mask Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> um, so, anyway, I always love finding out about this stuff. And for as much as I do obviously enjoy Brian Chucky, and I think the rest of you do too, but w- would you like to see whatever? rough first cut you had assembled just in terms of like the pacing and like how it looked and felt would any of you be curious to see that movie as like a bonus feature one day or something like that dan yeah yeah, absolutely it's interesting because like i said really like this movie i think it it i I don't think the rest of the series could have happened and been as successful without it Mm -hmm. one of my complaints in the middle is the pacing actually and Mm -hmm. so i'm curious because and i think what the reason why is because i think the film starts leaning a little bit too heavily like i said on these teens uh too much cop pulling them over stuff like it gets a little away from chucky and tiffany in the middle and i wonder if you was i don't know was he leaning more into chucky and tiffany was he leaning more into the action sequences him being a you know a hong kong action director at the time I, I might be totally wrong, right? But part of why I want to see it is because I actually don't love the pacing in the middle of this movie. So maybe I would like the pacing of the other cut. I, I wonder if it was the classic thing of like, no, we need to get more of those teens. It needs to be more teens zippy zappy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get the hotness in there. And so but I might be wrong, but I would be interested to see it. Right? Yeah, Rachel, are you saying the same? The hot. Oh no, totally. Like hot, that's what. Yeah. That's what I think. Like I like wonder if some of that producer things like, no, we got to, we got to put these hot teens. we got to get them in there more, you know, that kind of, cause I agree. That chick that's... from Roswell. Wait, is Roswell out yet or not? I don't know. That, was don't she, know. That she had, uh, all that she had done at this point from what I remember my was father the hero, right? my father, the hero. <laughs> and God, of course, that, yeah. under siege Two: dark territory, which I also oh, saw in movie theaters. Yeah. <laughs> saw a lot. Okay. Maybe like... not raw. I guess she didn't have that. CW bankability yet, but not uh, right. But a she producer can like see how she could, right? So I, I don't yeah. know. Totally. I wonder what he focused on and mm-hmm. how because he was such a great like action director and stuff. And I also just his familiarity with Chucky and kind of the current horror scene as well. Like, did was he from like was he super familiar? Well, like, did he thing. know? So yeah, I would be he curious wasn't. to see. He was. He had not seen the other movies before he got hired for this. I mean, and like, then he went cool. back and he, he he said he watched them, but you know, yeah. after he got hired, but he did not have a, a long familiarity with the series at all. No, but Mike, go ahead. I mean, that's one of the complaints that a lot of folks had with Freddy versus Jason, yeah, myself sure. included, is that you know I don't know if you have. I mean, especially with that movie, which we talked a lot, you know, a lot about you know, a few years back, but you know that one really did need, I think, a, an eye. I mean, I think there's arguments that some people will say, well, you need someone to objective because you have two franchises that are clashing together. But I'm also like, yeah, but one of those happens to be arguably the most visually compelling franchise of all time. And you don't have an eye that matches that. Like, I, I, I just, I, I would argue that still to this day. So I don't think it matters so much here. I think that, you know, I agree with the sentiment that the editor really is the director of the movie. 
I, I'm a big believer in that. And I think that this is a comedy and it works better as a comedy. So the fact that someone came in and by the notes, it seems like Mancini was the person that really made it the punchy comedy it is today. I think that was really important. I don't, because when I look back at you who probably focused more on the, 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 the action and sort of the melodrama, especially Freddy versus Jason is any example. Mm. I don't want that. I don't, because those are the elements that I don't actually think are interesting. Like, I think, you know, some of the action in this movie is funny, like, you know, the diehard esque stuff with Chucky and the parking lot, but like, I don't know. I, it just, for me, it's the dialogue. It's the punchiness. It's the, it's the humor. And so I'd be, of course, I'd be interested to watch a cut. I'm always interested. I mean, I've watched how, what, how many cuts have we seen of Halloween six? Like I've watched right, them all. Yeah, you know, we, we are, we, if I feel like any horror fan that has gone through the Halloween franchise and has really been obsessed with it, you're open for anything. Like I've watched like what, four different fucking cuts of Halloween. I think we've, we've watched a stitch together in 1978. I mean, it's fucking ridiculous. So of course I'd watch this. But I don't think it'll be effective. I think yeah. what makes this movie is the punch, you know? Well, I mean, on that, I mean, if you look at, yeah, use next big projects were, again, Freddy versus Jason. But he also did a movie that I watched recently, Universal distributed, actually. I thought it was really effective. He did Jet Li's Fearless. Mm. Good. It's a good movie. Uh, it's kind of a, it's a biopic. And, but there's tremendous fight scenes in this. And it's funny, though, the fight scenes do recall Freddy versus Jason, but, and this is for its benefit, they, they serve as a reminder that just because the action fight choreography and direction does not work for Freddy versus Jason, it doesn't mean it can't work really well in a Chinese martial arts action drama set in the early 20th century of Jet Li. You know what I mean? So he's definitely, it just, it wasn't a good match with Freddy versus Jason. And I think the fact that Mancini was kind of there throughout the production also helped. If you had somebody who had been with the Friday 13th franchise or the Elm Street franchise on that set, it also probably could have helped things. But it was such a fresh crew. You know what I mean? Yeah, it was I just, mean it was, everybody was new. And it just, you know. To be it, fair, Sean S. Cunningham was involved in it. But, but not clearly, that much. Well, yeah. clearly not. I mean, it's more yeah. of an Elm Street movie than it is a fucking Friday film. So I, anyway, For sure. I don't want to go in that debate. But well, you can check all about that in our Friday, Freddy vs. Jason episode from, 19, from 2019. 19. Yeah, God. Yeah. Oh my God. That was last decade. All right, Mike. You talked about how Brave Chucky did in comparison to horror movies, but how did it end up doing uh, numbers wise? And what else came out around this time? It did very well. Yeah. I'll just say that. So the film grossed $11.8 million on its opening weekend, and it debuted at number two behind which movie? Okay, I don't know this. Hold on. This one's tough. Titanic. This... No, wait, wait, that's no. 99. <laughs> Honestly, it probably, it probably just stopped being yeah. successful a year later. Yeah. Wait, what year? All right. 98, 90... October 98. October 98. Was that Do another you... horror movie or not? Kind of. The Relic Maybe. or something? Is that 98? Mm. No. Yeah, but it's not It's not this one, though. Maybe. <laughs> no. Think, like, October. drama, uh, some big actresses in it. Hmm. Big actresses. Give me one hint. Give me more. Mona Lisa Smile. No, no. no. <laughs> years later. Years later. Uh, years later. Sandra Bullock. The net. No, that's two. Later. Oh no, that's way Hope years later. No, you no. said actresses plural. That's yes. too, too early. 
Oh, 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 I know that witch movie. Yep. What's that called? Practical, oh, Practical Magic. Magic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Practical Magic was number one. So you know, fun that. fact. Who okay, I'll go right back at you, Mike. Who directed it? Uh was that Ronnie You. Yeah, Ronnie You. <laughs> Let me guess. Of, was it Nick Castle? No. No. It was somebody who starred in a movie that we've done commentary for. Griffin Dunn. From oh, American from London. Wow, okay. Directed that movie. Yeah. Fun hey, fact. they uh I just saw a picture of Griffin Dunn with uh Rosanna Arquette for they were doing some uh oh, that's cool. for, you know. Cotton. He's had a good career. He's had a good career. I like, I like yeah, Griffin Dunn. Lo- anyway. So uh, anyway, the movie went on to gross thirty two million, thirty two point four million at the domestic box office, and then it added another eighteen eighteen point three million internationally. So it gave it a final total of fifty million dollars, six hundred and ninety two thousand one hundred and eighty eight. So yeah, that's, a, that's good is, for that time. It's currently the highest grossing film of the Chucky franchise, which mm. I imagine it'll probably stay there. And but it's number two domestically, Child's Play, which made thirty three million in the U.S. Wow! But here's the thing: the budget for this was really high. It was like twenty five million, so it was the oh, second wow. highest budget until Seeds twenty nine million years later. So that makes the original one still the most profitable of the franchise because the original one was only nine million, and it made forty four million worldwide. So, you know, cost 25 million. I imagine what 10, 15 more with marketing. It was a you know, a nominal hit for, sure. for Universal. So. I can't believe you're telling me that Seed of Chucky cost more. That's I know. Well, think about me. it. I mean, there's more puppets. Yeah, there's more stars. I, I mean, yeah. I mean, it, it it also bride made money. So, they're probably thinking, well, if we, you know, pour some more into this, you know, maybe it'll come back, but You'll find out next uh, next month's episode, I imagine. So, oh, for Seed of Chucky, directed by Don Mancini. Yeah, yeah. You, know, Michael, I, I, we, your nickname is Michael Mancini. You understand? You do realize that that's also a play on Doctor Michael Mancini from Melrose Place, right? Did you oh, know, did you know that? I I did not know. I, I should know, considering <laughs> I just that realized that I'm such a nine hundred two and guy over here. But I know um, yeah. same universe technically, because I think uh, what's his name dated Kelly in the early episodes of Melrose Place. You can hear all about that. On somebody else's podcast. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been a lot of fun breaking down the history of this movie, but it's time to move on to the score and soundtrack and a category that we call a true classic never goes out of style. Worst Is this shit? Never mind, child. Jesus, the music scene's gone to hell since I've been dead. That's more like it. Our resident rocker, Rachel Reeves, is ready to revel in Revel's return and also discuss the franchise's first true soundtrack. Take it away, Rachel. Yeah, I this movie does not get enough credit for its banger of a soundtrack. Yes, yeah. So uh, excited to talk and go into that a little bit. But before we do that, uh, composer of this film, Graham Revel, who, you know, that name may sound familiar to folks because... He did indeed also work on Child's Play 2. So I'm not going to go too heavy on his background because, yes, you can hear all of that on the Child's Play 2 episode. Mike talks about that a lot. But quick basic info, New Zealand composer and musician, founding member of SPK, Industrial Electronic Group, which I do think we get a taste of that here for sure in mm-hmm. his um, his score for Bride of Chucky. Has tons of serious horror creds. and. I I like this guy. He calls himself an accidental film composer because he never really intended on getting into the field, but has clearly done well for himself. He you know got he got a record deal 
as just a regular, you know, musician, SPK-related kind of stuff. And instead, he spent his advance money instead of recording. He bought a house and a Fairlight, um, a $35,000 Fairlight. My God. Oh, my God. That's like... First payment money right there, yeah. It's crazy. Uh, Different time, different time, different era. And on that Fairlight, composed a song that eventually was used in Dead Calm, which I don't know. If anybody has not seen Dead Calm, go watch Dead Calm. It's really good. Nicole Kidman's first movie, Billy Zane is hot, hot, hot. (laughs) Sam that. Yes, Sam Stuck on a boat the entire movie. (laughs) You would think, but it's, it's great. I mean, um, Sam Neill is literally trapped in a boat the entire they're movie. They're both no, sinking. no, it's just it's <laughs> the only thing I can think of. It's really good. Back to my wife. Yeah. It's intense. I'm it's intense. With you or whatever that was. This guy was a drug addict. Um, oh God, Ellie, I'm uh, going with you. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> he okay. So after Dead Calm, he was like, "Hey, I did pretty good there. Maybe I should look into doing this more." And I found a funny quote from him about this time period. He said, I got an interview fairly soon after Dead Calm on the piano. I remember the interview very well. It was in Jane Campion's backyard, and she asked me, are you a good piano player? And honestly, and like an idiot, I said no. And so I'd forgotten the first rule of any job interview, lie through your teeth. I hadn't been Mm. for a job interview since high school, uh, if ever, so she ended up hiring Michael Nyman instead. So he is the quintessential kind of fake it till you make it. And it seems to have worked for him because he has made it. What's funny about that, Rachel, is the fact that, yeah. I mean, obviously the piano is in the title, one. But yes. it would be funny if, if, he was, if he got hired and they couldn't fire him and he really did not know how to play the piano. <laughs> so it's just him clanging, these intimate scenes just clanging on the piano. But uh, yeah. one yeah. day maybe we'll see if I can do some uh, video on that. Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, it's good. So, okay, he... <laughs> He um, ended up actually getting a BMI Lifetime Achievement Award in 2005, and I just thought it was fun because the award was presented by Chucky. Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) I wonder if he was promoting seat of Chucky. Yeah. Yeah. So when introducing him, he said, okay, Graham Revels killed sharks. He's killed bats. He's killed fog. The only thing he hasn't done and should have done was kill his agent. Uh, That's good. Good Chucky voice. Chucky, yeah, so, you little scamp. Chucky quote, yeah. Yeah, so that that was, you know, he's not been able to get away from Chucky, and I'm pretty sure it's his theme for, like, Child's Play 2 is is kind of, like, that's, there's no, like, real theme. It's not, like, Halloween or something with mm, Chucky, yeah. but that Child's Play 2 theme, I interviewed Joseph LaDuca, who did the Chucky TV show, and he had talked about how that was kind of the reference that everybody like as kind of like the iconic child's play too, that's sort of the music that we want to like lend ourselves to and is used for like the theme song and everything. Yep. So I was gonna say, yeah, that's Revels, like yeah. the demonic toy chest mm-hmm. kind yeah. of thing they use. Yeah. yeah. And so we do, we do see that with this score, I think I feel like it's similarly kind of as playful as child's play too, but it's got a fun kind of variety that I like. We definitely see like his SPK influence, which lends itself to the soundtrack and the music it's that it's yeah. kind of like paired with. But I, I, I mean, I tend to read a lot into these kind of things, but I'm not sure if you guys also kind of got the feeling that it was leaning pretty heavily into sort of like the classic horror and film tropes of and ideas especially Fran's Waxman score for Bride of Frankenstein. 
I didn't pick up on that part of it, though. You can expand upon that. Yeah, I have no proof because Graham, apparently he doesn't really like doing interviews or Mm. like talking about himself. There's like, especially child, like there's not a whole lot about this out there. He's like, I let the music do the talking. (laughs) Yeah. He was so humiliated by Chucky accepting that award. He didn't want to talk to anybody after that. (laughs) Yeah. But I do think that, you know, his use of, like there's some very similar... Like he uses these glissandos that are like really kind of melty and like we hear that in Bride of Frankenstein a lot. And there's mm. a lot of really like muted brass and sort of some percussion and the the way some of the chords kind of progress, I feel like is very similar. It gives it just in general, it gives off a very classic horror film vibe, I think, going all the way back to like universal monster style or even like hammer horror style, very sweeping cinematic sort of stuff. But then he's also able to, in certain scenes, bring in some guitars, some electronics, this Mm -hmm. sort of industrial tinted new metal mentality. And I think that's a very tricky feat to do, but it is critical in making the tone and the look and the style of this film just all kind of gel. I I think the fact that when you I think about his score and I think about Rob Zombie. When yep. I think about this movie and Rob Zombie, yeah. obviously his whole aesthetic, especially was old classic horror movies. Yes. I feel like that was a, no pun intended, a marriage made in heaven. <laughs> oh, totally. Him and Ravel, right. Yeah. Yes. I, no, I think, I think so. I have to, I have to ask though. I have to ask. Yes. Because yes. there's, all right, this is what, when we were up Dewey's theme earlier, yep. and I know, <laughs> and, I, and I know, are you, are you going with this? Okay. Sorry. Am I, I don't want to, I, you go ahead. You go ahead. Oh, there's I nothing just, to spoil. I just wanted to talk to you guys about this. Okay. Because yeah, we, we get this weird. Yes. Like, sorry. Go ahead. I know what you're going to say. <laughs> this is exciting. <laughs> it comes up in multiple tracks on the song, Tiffany and Chucky, Plastic Love, but like this sort of like weird love theme that we get between <laughs> Chucky and Tiffany is like, this has to be a call or like a nod to like Dewey and Scream, well, right? And also, we talked about when I, we, we were just talking about John Woo connections, and I'm like, oh, and John Woo, you know, directed Broken Arrow and all that too, which is mm-hmm. where Dewey's theme comes from. But no, it's all, it's weird because it's almost like like a baritone guitar or something, and the first two notes sound just like Dewey's theme, but then it goes minor and doesn't sound romantic. It's almost like bam, bam, I'm I telling you, I'm, it was like Universal realized, well, we don't want to pay any more money for the rights to this, right? We don't want to deal with the wine scenes. <laughs> like so let's just cr- slightly change it a little bit. And it, and it kind of works for this because with Dewey's theme, it's completely romantic because him and Gail have a healthy yeah. romance, right? Even that with all its flaws. Whereas here, it gets a little twisted. Like that third note, I, I think it's a minor note. It makes it kind of creepy and unsettling a little bit. I, but you guys all thought the same things. I, I thought I thought that the same too. thing. And on top of all that, when reading Reign of Chucky, they also mentioned a similarity. Oh, do they really? Oh, that's the really there. funny. Yeah, there's I no confirmation, that. they said. But something yeah, else... It's think about this. Uh, who plays Dewey in Scream? Arquette. And his sibling is in Bride of Chucky. How about that? There you <laughs> yeah, go. yeah. No, it's 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 uh, undeniable. You can't help but make the comparison, whether or not it was intentional. I don't know. It is kind mm. of funny. It is silly because yeah, you get this really twangy guitar and then these really fun vocals. So it's like this juxtaposition, and you also get like they even add like this really cheesy like sexy sax. <laughs> You know, yeah. like later on yeah. and to <laughs> yeah. that, which just is like, oh, my gosh, this is so silly. And you wouldn't think it works, but it does. And I think that it's just I 
I do think Child's Play 2 is the stronger. If we're comparing the two of his Child's Play scores, I think Child's Play 2 is a bit stronger in some ways, but I do feel like this one really matches the vibe. Even like, mm. like I think there's a track called like Chucky's March and it even has like this sort of like T2 anvil like vibes. Mm-hmm. And it's where like Chucky's like going, you know, got the knife and like going after something. And it's like, wow, this is really making some nods to some classic other things, but in a subtle enough way that it's not like offensive. It's yeah. you can kind of pick up on what he's doing and we get lots of, you know, very psycho style agitated strings. And so it's as much as there's references to other films in this, the music is mirroring that too, I think. Oh yeah. I, I agree on that hundred percent. Like it's not too on the nose. Like you said, it's not, it's not Bernard Herman strings or yes. something like that. You know what I mean? It's not that it's just, it's definitely a callback to that era though, for sure. Yeah. All right, now this is what I've been excited to talk about there, Rachel, is, um, <laughs> yeah. and I mean this genuinely, is this, like, if you if you had, like, a 1998 <laughs> box and you wanted to put in, like, 1998 movies and music and whatnot, you know, you'd be pretty well served if you put in this soundtrack into that yeah. box and dug it up years later to figure out what was going on in 1998. So tell us a little bit about the soundtrack for yeah. Brad Shucky and, and some of the bands and songs involved in this. Yeah. I mean, first off, I have to say, like, there's a lot of terrible soundtracks that come out at this time. Like, we can, you know, we've seen and we will see even in, like, the Scream franchise. Like, some of those soundtracks do not necessarily hold up. This one, mm-hmm. this one is strong. Mm-hmm. Like, there's not many songs on here that I would say are just, like, trash. But, uh, <laughs> um, so, we, yeah, let's talk about this. So, the music supervisor on this film, who I think probably had a lot to do with this, her name was Mary Ramos. And she is a boss. She is in the Tarantino camp. She's worked on a lot of his films, Kill Bill, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Django Unchained, and Glorious Bastards, like a lot of a lot of his stuff. And, you know, anybody that's into Tarantino knows that music is incredibly important mm-hmm. in those films. So she has a lot to do with that. Um, outside of that, she also worked on Assassination Assassination Nation, which I know friend of the pod, Jen Adams, loves. Loves that movie, yeah. Uh, Grindhouse, Death Proof. So Robert Rodriguez connections there. Also um, Teaching Mrs. Tingle, The Skulls just kind of to put it in the framework of that time. But yeah, still working a lot, but is clearly very skilled at picking great music to put in films. That is, it not only works with the film, but is also going to capitalize on some outside appeal and doing that. And I think that's such an important part, maybe to the success of this film and kind of films of this era is sort of that importance and influence of marketing outside of the film Mm -hmm. and making those connections. And then also just MTV, you guys, like, I don't know if you remember MTV. I do remember the good old MTV (laughs) before they cut off the music television at the bottom of the logo. this was definitely, (laughs) we're still in the throes of it. We're still in the throes of it. This is like the height of power for TRL, you know, music videos still had a lot of power and, you know, say what you want about the music during that time period. But this was a big time for what I'm, I guess I'm just going to call radio music. Mm Mm-hmm. Because this was a time when if you didn't hear it on the radio or like go buy the physical album, like that's pretty much all you could go. That's all you could listen to music, right? Mm-hmm. We didn't have the internet. I know. Hard to believe. Like no streaming. Um, so big time for radio music. And so 
just making the connection to the to MTV that year. Well, I guess 1999, the MTV Video Music Awards. Here's some of the groups that were uh, featured. So we had Blink-182, Nine Inch Nails, Paul McCartney, Jay-Z, Eminem, Madonna, Britney Spears, and NSYNC made their VMA debuts that year, just to kind of put it in the framework. That was the first time they performed. She performed, you know, one Hit Me Baby One More Time there for the first time. Aerosmith, Run DMC, Smash Mouth, Diana Ross, Ozzy Osbourne, and Little Kim in the iconic Little Kim outfit. Oh, yes. The purple wig. And I remember that vividly well. Yeah, so it's I do. All kinds of music was just blowing up. And that also goes for what we see on this soundtrack, which is more of the the new metal, mm-hmm. for <laughs> the, sure. alter- the alternative rock, the new era of alternative rock. You know, even though this is a maybe perhaps a bit more focused genre-wise, the sort of hyper-commercialization and sort of general influence of music at this time, I think, is reflected in this the film style overall, because I think there is definitely a music video style to this film, mm-hmm. but also the soundtrack. I think, I mean, you want to talk about a song that, like, sets the tone. Yes. There's no better song for this than when uh, Tiffany says, Hello, Dolly, and you just have mm-hmm. that. And then Living Dead Girl just kicks in and the credits come at the screen. I mean, like, that's the perfect tone setter there. Yeah. So very first song you hear, Living Dead Girl by Rob Zombie. Mm -hmm. Obviously, Zombie has gone on to have an incredible career in in horror and incredible connections, regardless of whether or not you actually like his movies. Can't argue with it. Nope. So this song, at the time, was the second single from his... De- his solo debut album, Hellbilly Deluxe. So this is after oh, yeah. White Zombie, which we also get on this. Yeah. So we there's a lot of Rob Zombie influence on this. We get uh, Thunder Kiss 65, um, which song. was... Love that song. Yeah, which was originally released in 92 off their band's third solo album, La Sexorcisto. <laughs> that was 92? 92. Yeah, man, because White Zombie... Yeah, but I thought... I, I think that song... Must have had a regain popularity like a like 95 or something like that. Yeah, I thought it was on Astro Creep 2000, but it's not because, yeah. but, right. but I feel like it kind of got popular. Around. Like, I'm sure if they did a deluxe version of Astro Creep 2000, they'd have that song on there, or maybe you know like I mean? a Hellbilly deluxe version. Hell- <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> uh, further Rob Zombie connections to this. Uh, Power Man 5000 is also featured on this, the song Son of X51. And that band is led by Rob Zombie's younger brother. Uh, That's you right. know, Spider Five offic- or something, right? Official or legal one. name is Spider it's One. Spider if anybody one. wants to, this is always fun. Whenever we somehow bring up Power Man Five Thousand, if you want to bring up all the band members of Power Man Five Thousand and just read them off real quick, if somebody wants to do that while Rachel is is, is yeah, going please look them up. I don't remember. I got them here. Them up. Oh, okay. Here hey, we go. Yeah, this is always so got, fun. Um, well, the the past member list is fairly long, so I won't go through that. I'll maybe. But the current members, Spider One, who's a uh, friend of Buddy Disgusting, Merv Three, DJ Rattan, and then Taylor Haycraft. So like just a regular, like just Taylor, Taylor. Haycraft, I, <laughs> which I love. So you have Spider One, Merv Three, DJ Rattan, Taylor Haycraft. He's like, I'm not doing it, guys. <laughs> yeah, he's like, I'm not doing it. I'm not, not wearing doing the mask. Like, Come on. Don't, don't, don't you want to be like Goblin 69 <laughs> Yeah, like, he's like, no, nope. like can't see that. that it's like the opposite of the 2001 Guns N' Roses where everybody had a normal name and then there was Buckethead. Bucket Bucket yeah. <laughs> yeah. Michael good. Myers mask, kind of. Uh, yeah. yeah. So then, uh, so past members there are like AI3, Dorian27, uh, M3387, <laughs> Johnny Rock Heatley, Velcro, 
Evan yes. Nine, X51, scissors oh, with a five, two fives for the S's and scissors. That's the one. <laughs> I mean, even it's always funny to me because I look, I, I like Rob Zombie's music to an extent, but after so many solo albums, if you look at even all his hits, I'm not joking. His songs, his lyrics are just laundry lists. Like you could add, li- and they don't even really make sense. It will. It's not. It's not like he's saying. Oh, the wings of a bat on the moon. It's always, it's like the wings of Frankenstein in the gut yeah. bucket chug. And you got a sunset looking at big foot. It's, it doesn't make any fucking sense. Like it, it drives me nuts. I mean, I like his music, but he's, it's, it's literal Mad Libs. Like even I had to review an album of his a few years ago and it was like, oh, the acid dispenser, witch fuck orgy spaceship. And it, like these words. Hey, don't listen, acid sense dispenser, anyway. witch fuck orgy is a great song. Uh, <laughs> Uh, well, you know what he's like, Dan? It. He's uh, he's like uh, Gavin Rossdale of of because if you listen to some of those Bush lyrics a long time ago, oh, yeah. you're like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, <laughs> yeah, uh, it'll just be, it'll just be like bamboo heart and <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You're just like, what? <laughs> uh, well, and like Carmen Five Thousand does the same thing, but it's more like cheesy, like sci-fi, like yes. movie yeah. stuff. So it's you know clearly they're related. <laughs> and Worlds Collide uh, still works, still banging. Oh my I god, yeah, I unequivocally will still love that song but what's crazy about living dead girl is that so this is certainly the first place i heard it and i had you know i'd like dragula but mm. i i get now why it was the first place i heard because it wasn't even released as a single until 99 wow yeah Which, i think the album was out by the time the album had come out a few months before chucky but once again to rachel's point on if you, it was on radio most people yeah it doesn't even say in the beginning of this opening theme by yes. rob zombie or something like yes. it gets its own placard on the opening credits yeah, and it's not on the physical CD release, which is interesting. Which Wait, we can really? Talk. It's yeah. It's I mean I yeah I have it right. It's, oh yeah, it's not. Rachel shared this. Wait, what was I, it? Because a couple songs. Wait, aren't there a couple songs on the soundtrack that are not so in the movie too? Right? I bought if I yeah. bought yes. the soundtrack, it didn't have that. It's yeah. like the main theme in the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's two songs that are not that are on the soundtrack that are not in the film. Uh, which is Cold Chamber, Blisters, and what was the other one here? Human Disease by Slayer. But wow. and we can and we can get into that in a minute because these are these are songs inspired by the motion picture. I, God, I hate it when they used to do that. Like that, no, that drove me nuts. Like Spider Man did that. Spider Man 2002 did that. It was fun. Ninety eight had another soundtrack that had some sort of omission like this. Was uh, disturbing behavior. And I remember buying that soundtrack, which actually turns out to be a great soundtrack, but uh, it doesn't have the Harvey Danger song on there, which is like the signature song off that That's album. That's insane. That movie. It's on yeah. the trailer and everything. Yeah. And I had no yeah. idea who these bands were and what the songs were called. So I just assumed that it was going to be on the soundtrack. And I remember like going through all of it and being like, it's not on there. <laughs> like, of course, the it, song. Like, it's so weird that it's not because at the time, like this, I mean, Hellbilly Deluxe was on Geffen, which is, you know, under the umbrella of Universal. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm not exactly sure. I'm sure it was some legal thing, but why it's not on there. But it's not on there. However, this soundtrack is the only instance w- in which Zombie and Spider-One appear on the same motion picture soundtrack. Interesting. So, which, you know, I'm sure he tried to help his brother. Oh, yes. The the Power Man 5000 song was on here. I just wanted to say it came out first on the Bride of Chucky soundtrack. And then later on their second album, Tonight the Stars Revolt, which I definitely owned. That's the one with, um, yeah, that's the great one. That's the big one. Yeah, but but I, there's several songs on here that came out in the film first before they came out 
on the actual band's album. And I think that that's something that's really unique to this time period, well, and previously, but just the fact that if you wanted to hear some of these songs, you had to go buy the Bride of Chucky soundtrack because some of these albums were not even out yet. (laughs) And I think that that's just kind of pretty cool. Like one of them, um, another one off this album that had a similar situation was there's a Static X song, Blood for Days, which is also... I'm going to say a pretty banging song. <laughs> uh, here's a fun story. Again, maybe not fun. I remember I was at Virgin Megastore on the second floor and the lead singer Static X was like at the magazine section. Sick. Dressed ju- the same as he is on stage. There's no, it wasn't like he was like in a baseball cap, you know, like the hair was just sticking all the way up and everything else. I thought he's a normal guy. Just a normal yep. guy walking around. Yeah. Just living his best life. Um, Checking out so. copies of uh, Uncut Magazine, you know, like oh, just God. going through the reviews. Uh, so, yeah. So Static X at this time, new band, up and coming. This song was off their debut album, Wisconsin Death Trip, which didn't come out till 2000 and was also featured on the Universal Soldier, the Return soundtrack. So Universal was pushing this one. Or Warner Brothers, I guess. had the big Megadeth song on that soundtrack, from what I remember as well. Yeah. I I don't remember the name of the song, but they they do shout it out at the very beginning, so you can check it out at home. Yeah. So this soundtrack, I think it's... I mean, yes, there's some new metal here. We've got Typo Negative has Love You to Death, which was off their album called October Rust their fourth studio album. We've got Stabbing Westward, So Wrong. Uh, That song is off of their Wither, Blister, Burn, and Peel album, which was their second album. But what I think is cool is you also... You also get some classic rock kind of bands here. And don't get mad at me, guys. Like, classic rock. I know I'm using that term incorrectly. But... If you say something like, you know, Nirvana's (laughs) on here, then I'll throw myself off a cliff. Yeah, we know. Go ahead. But, like, we've got Motorhead doing, you know, Love for Sale. We've got Judas Priest with Bloodstained. And that was kind of... That that song is off of Jugulator, which was the kind of was their first studio album since 1990. So it had been a minute since Judas Priest had released anything, I guess. And it's one of the first albums that you know Rob Helford's not on. <laughs> but, well, that would lead into the movie Rockstar, which is basically based on what happened with Judas Priest, oh. with with them hiring a fan as a lead singer after yeah, firing their queer. Role. Their queer lead singer. Yep. Great supporting role by Stephen Jenkins in that movie. Yeah. I would be remiss if I didn't bring up Stephen Jenkins on a yeah. podcast. And the director of that movie played Dennis in John Carpenter's Christine. We have fun. F- these are fun facts, folks. <laughs> Triple F. I mean, come on. Let's go. Here we go. Yeah. And then, you know, you also got Bruce Dickinson, uh, yeah. Trumpets of Jericho, which was off of, you know, one of his solo albums. So, it's kind of a fun mix. It is very like new metal e, but you've also got some of these icons of the genre too, of like you know kind of classic hard rock and metal. So it's it's a kind of a fun mix, I think. But then I don't know, you get some things like screaming cheetah wheelies, uh, and their song Boogie King, which I could do without. Uh, also- sorry, I thought that was a Ram Zabi title. You were it saying. sounds like it, but it's <laughs> okay. not. No, it's not. It's not. It's not. Sorry, guys. And then you've also got like I could do without uh, the Monster Magnet song "See You in Hell." Well, it's just so negative, you know. I just yeah, <laughs> just I don't know. It was their kind of big at this time. It was off of their fourth album, which was like their sort of big breakthrough album called Power Trip. Another Universal band, a lot of Universal-related bands on here, but not everything. 
And then, yeah, the two original songs that premiered on the soundtrack, The Slayer and The Cold Chamber wow. tracks, which is was, interesting. Like, aren't there like 17 or 18 tracks in that album, too? There, Yes. And then there's also a Graham Revel kind of remix song called We Belong Dead. So you do get a, a taste of the film score with some like fun dialogue and stuff cut in. That's a pretty oh, fun remix. That reminds me, Rachel, speaking of yeah. Brian Frankenstein illusions. Mm-hmm. Where Tiffany says we belong dead. And I think that they say that as well in, in Bride of Frankenstein. I believe they do too. <laughs> yeah, look at that. Graham Ravel reminding us all. But Mike, go ahead. It's funny though, th- there's so much this glutton's worth of new metal and metal. But like when I think about this movie, I don't even think about Living Dead Girl. I don't think about, well, I, I still think of White Wedding by Billy Idol because I was in the trailer. Mm. And it was just beautifully matched. And then also Call Me. Which I think is the you know Bonnie's yes. song, which is like the marriage. Also there is not perfect, on the soundtrack. Which is why I mean I get because it probably was expensive to get it on there, but yeah. like those those are the two songs I think about with this movie. Which is there's just, also a, a great kidney thief song. Uh, they do a cover of Crazy, that's which really, yeah. I don't know if anybody else, but whenever I hear this, I immediately think of like Elaine singing it in Seinfeld, like when Molly Shannon walks in and she's like, "Oh yeah, Crazy <laughs> for <laughs> Um So that's. You know, dates me, I guess. But th- yeah, so that song well, if it is dates a cover. You, it definitely dates us. Uh, so don't worry about that. Yeah, but it sounds very like Portis Heady and I think is also just like an incredible song to mm-hmm. to like have in this film. But I, yeah. Anyways. Rachel, that's incredible research once again, whenever you're yeah, on. Seriously. I know you're, you're one of the only guests who I'll actually be like, Hey, if you want to cover this, I think you could, you could, you, you've got your firm grasp on the music, especially. So <laughs> yeah. we always know we can rely on Rachel for that. I also say Bruce Dickinson appeared on another soundtrack of a movie that we've covered over the last five years. If you can't guess it in five seconds, I'll just go uh, ahead and tell you what it is. Are you making a joke because that's Christopher Walken's name on the SNL cowbell sketch no, no, also. No, 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 and they boy. feature don't fear the reaper in the stand miniseries, which no, I guess no, no. Is it's, yeah, he's, yeah. he's the lead singer of iron maiden. No, and no I know that yeah, his yeah. cover of iron maidens, bring your daughter to the slaughter is on the Elm street five. Soundtrack. I thought it was Elm street. Yeah. Oh. yeah. So remember years like on the, on the VHS cover, there was like a bright yellow sticker on there that would always say featuring Bruce Dickinson's bring your daughter to the slaughter. Good song. That also yeah. would have fit very well on uh, in this movie as well. At least the title would have. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, who would have thought? But I guess, you know, seven years in between Child's Play 3 and Bride of Chucky has given us a lot to talk about so much that we are splitting Bride of Chucky into two episodes. So we'll be back either later this week or early next week with our second episode on Bride of Chucky. So until then, I guess all I can really say is... This is the end, friend. This is the end of our show. For now. We hope you enjoyed this production. If you like our programming... Consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, and more. <laughs>